0: anytime you have a centralization of power and wealth and influence in the hands of a small number of people it's so easy to delude yourself either as an individual or as an an organization into thinking just a few more years
1: hello there from nashville what a place what a city you know what i really love nashville i've had such a great time here I definitely think I could move it. It's good competition for Austin. I've had such a great time. Oh, my God. If you've not been to Nashville, you really need to come here. You really need to come check it out. Head down Broadway, see some live music, eat some of the food, meet some of the people. Yes, I love Nashville. I'm going to be back. I'm going to be back very soon, hopefully. Also, got to record the first live WBD show yesterday, which was with Marty Bent and Preston Pish, which was super cool. It was a great venue. The team did a great job putting it together. And thank you to everyone who came. Hopefully, I'm going to do another one of those soon. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Lane Retic to discuss why he quit the Ethereum Foundation. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And first up today, I'm going to be talking about Compass Mining, who are my newest sponsor. But they're not just a sponsor. I'm also a customer of theirs, and I am now back mining Bitcoin. And in the first 44 days of mining... I've mined 0.141 Bitcoin, which is worth over around $6,600 now with a little price spurt this morning with Bitcoin mooning. So it's good to be back mining. And I really love these guys. Companies are amazing. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy myself to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, it was really easy to get it set up and onboarded and anyone can do this now and mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines and choose a facility and Compass pretty much do everything else for you. So if you are interested in mining or you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io, which is compassminin dot And next up, we have BlockFi, who recently launched the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people out in the U.S. who own or are interested in stacking more Bitcoin The BlockFi Rewards Credit Cards provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. Now, you don't just get the 1.5% back, but in your first three months of card ownership, you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin and everything you spend annually over $50,000 on your card, you get 2% back in Bitcoin. If you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And next up we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now a hardware wallet that allows you, as a Bitcoiner, to take custody of your Bitcoin. Now with Ledger, I've been a customer of theirs since 2017, and the Nano S I bought back then, I am still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device, and you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And also, let's talk about Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I believe we're still in a bull market, and I'm in this for the long run. So I'm buying the dips with Gemini, with the Gemini app, and I also have set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I am yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, then please head over to gemini.com, which is G E M I N I.com. Okay, so onto the show today, and I am joined by Ethereum developer Lane Retic. Now, some people may question why I'm covering this on What is a Bitcoin show. Well, for me, Governance is an important topic and while some people criticize or question the conservative nature of Bitcoin governance It is helpful to view it through the lens of Ethereum governance Now while I was out in El Salvador recently I was at a dinner and Lane came over and introduced himself and started to give me a bit of his background How he worked at the Ethereum Foundation for a couple of years and ended up quitting the project in 2019 He left the foundation because he became disenfranchised with Ethereum governance and was growing tired of the hypocrisy within the foundation but Lane is also a Bitcoiner and explained to me why he joined Ethereum, why he works on the project, but why he also cares about Bitcoin and wanted to tell his story and also contrast the two different forms of governance between Ethereum and Bitcoin. Before we get into this one, I just want to make it clear, I'm not trying to attack Ethereum with this show. It is just a conversation about the Ethereum Foundation an attempt to contrast the two forms of governance. And because Lane approached me and asked to tell his story, I felt like there was enough in this for this. So please don't start emailing me and yelling at me for doing this show. So... Even though it isn't a Bitcoin show, I think a lot of you will enjoy this because the ideas of governance and decentralization trade-offs taken for scalability are crucially important. Anyway, onto the show. If you do want to get in touch, feel free to jump in my Telegram group or hit me up on my email, which is hellowhatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, I'm off to Miami. I'm going to catch a flight in a couple of hours, but I will see you all next week. All right, over to Lane. Um, I actually like it sometimes when the interview starts and it's yeah. not, hi, Lane, welcome here. Like, we actually just are talking because when when we were sat there and you came over to sit next to me, yep. I was like, I don't know what it was. I was like, I think he's come to tell me something. <laughs> I knew you wanted to come have a conversation. Did I go? Did I actually? So you were sat,
0: I remember it's opposite end of the table. Yeah. We
1: should set the, the scene for anyone watching or listening. Yes. Uh, two, weeks ago, About two weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, in Zonte in El Salvador gone to dinner and this big group like eight, ten people yep. I think Gladstein was there yep. and uh, Alejandro. Alejandro was there uh, and we had we met before I couldn't remember
0: well I think we had actually so when you arrived at the airport you were in a car Alex was driving yeah and you guys dropped Alejandro off yeah so you were there we didn't actually meet that day um, I feel like that was our I think we actually had had dinner together a couple of nights before but again we've been in Oxford no
1: I mean table. previous to El Salvador previous
0: to El Salvador I, I don't Think so. If it was, it was like in passing.
1: Right. Uh, we well, probably met on Twitter. Maybe four. <laughs> well, like, so you came and sat down. I was like, and when you sat down, I was like, I just, I was like, he wants to have a conversation you with just me like, about something. I just, I <laughs> could sense it because what happened was you, you can, you can, you can sense these things. Sure. You know, you didn't just sit down and join the conversation. You were like ready. And I was like, the gap in the conversation happened. And then
0: you were chatting I, with someone else about something else. I don't remember, but. Yeah. Okay. I mean, sure. I uh, uh, I don't think I had anything specific I wanted to say, but I wanted to meet you properly because yeah. I listen to your show and I'm a fan and uh, Thank you. like the work you do.
1: Well, so let, we'll do the setup because whatever show title we use, people are going to know this is <laughs> theor- they're going to see Ethereum and go, Pete, you've got a Bitcoin show while you're discussing Ethereum's Ethereum. Ethereum's
0: going to be in the title one way or another.
1: Ethereum's going to be in the title one yeah. way or another. Okay. I have a uh, um, an evolving view of Ethereum, which I'm going to explain. Yeah. Cool. But this con- the reason I wanted this conversation, one, you wanted to tell your story. And if somebody wants to tell their story, I always think it's important to listen if if it's... I'm, I want it to be told if it's useful. But I am really into the idea of governance at the moment. So yep. I think I'm really plugged into both at a protocol level for Bitcoin, but also at a governance level for societies and uh, states. Um, and I think we're going to have a long conversation in this about Ethereum governance, and I think that's going to be a useful lens for considering why Bitcoin governance is what I would say is strong governance, or so a, a strong structure of governance. Sure. So that's why we're going to be talking about Ethereum. My position on Ethereum has changed. Like, I went, I'm a Bitcoin maxi. I only hold Bitcoin. I'm not going to buy Ethereum. Um, but I, I, at the same time, I'm tired of the war, because I think it doesn't achieve anything. It's a war of
0: attrition, isn't it? It's a war of
1: attrition. And look, I don't mind being critical of Ethereum for the things I understand. And if someone says, should they buy Ethereum? I'll I'll usually say, buy Bitcoin and this is for this reason. Um, But at the same time, like, it's not going away. People are using it. Yes, it might have issues long term and it might die. Fine. technologies come and go. But I think it's really important to to stop having useless fights that achieve nothing. Um, So... If people- I think this sounds a
0: little bit cliche, but I genuinely think that like the things that unite us, which is to say the things we have in common, are much yeah. greater than the things that divide us. Like us being kind of like Bitcoiners and Ethereans.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're a Bitcoiner. I am. I yeah.
0: I uh, I am. I think of myself as a Bitcoiner first and foremost. I, I'm happy to share more background, but when I first got into the space in 2016, 2017, the first thing I bought was Bitcoin. The first events I went to were Bitcoin meetups right here in New York, the BitDevs mm-hmm. meetups. Shout out to those guys. Freaking fantastic um and if i were ever if it came down to a situation where i was forced to choose allegiance i would choose bitcoin i want to be very clear about that but yeah. i also think it's possible to hold both of these kind of ideas in my mind at the same time that both projects are cool and they both kind of uh solve different problems basically
1: and so i'm a bitcoin i only hold bitcoin and i've just decided like that's my work there's there's never going to be a scenario where i'm going to launch what ethereum did if i did <laughs> if i did i would double, double my revenue overnight and like there's massive financial incentives to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I don't have the time to dedicate to it, and I'm not hugely interested in it uh, but I, but you're curious and you're open-minded. Well, no, it's not even curious and open-minded. Uh, I like you and I want to talk to you, and what can I learn about Ethereum sure. that helps me understand Bitcoin better is sure. useful. but I'm not going to just like sh- just spend the rest of my life calling things shitcoins. And you know what? Sometimes I fear I've pushed people away from listening to my podcast when actually they could have come in and got something yeah. from it, just for being that. So I'm very supportive of what if, uh, Udi's been saying recently. Me and Danny have been talking about it a lot. I think he's trying to make an interesting point that some people are missing. It's not about people being mean on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's actually about a, a certain subgroup of people who are moronic assholes <laughs> who, who get a thrill out of abusing people and being complete fucking shits. And I've got l- very low tolerance for that sure. anymore. Um and, and that doesn't, when he makes, when he frames that, I I don't think he's saying every Bitcoin is like that. Of course not. He's just saying there's this group of fucking idiots. But and, there's a group that. of
0: fucking idiots in every sub community. Of course. And, and social media gives them a microphone and amplifies their voice.
1: Yeah. And it rewards them.
0: And we have this in Ethereum. I mean, I think, again, every community has some of these people. And I think, but you're right. The incentives are such that they get rewarded
1: for acting that way. Exactly. And I always think any form of like extreme behavior is a race to the bottom. Sure. And I think Udi's basically saying, look, there's nothing wrong with being in a Bitcoin Maxi and you know, Bitcoin is amazing, but surely we should not tolerate some of this utter bullshit that's got nothing to do with Bitcoin. So so that's why I'm happy to have this conversation. Uh, and also, I've had like, I want other conversations <laughs> now. If, sure, yeah. uh, so we, we, we should probably, people been thinking, what the fuck are you going on about? What, why are you here today? <laughs> and then we'll get into Ethereum.
0: It's a great question. Why am I here today? Um, no, I mean, I, I think I have a story to tell that may be interesting and may be valuable to some of your listeners. I think that's kind of what it boils down to. Um, you know, I've had an interesting journey and an interesting set of experiences that I'm, you know, more than happy to share with you. Also, I like you as well, and I, I like having conversations mm. with with interesting people and with interesting perspectives. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> so...
1: Let's let's start with what Ethereum means to you. I'll tell you what it means to me. I, I genuinely think Bitcoin is my vault, my safe, my hard money, safe sure. for the future, money for my kids, you know, something I only dip in when I need and it's it, it's my savings and it's really hard to get. I'm like that's it. I think of Ethereum as Vegas, but not entirely. But I think it's a place where I would maybe take money I didn't want to put in Bitcoin and go and gamble a bit and maybe make some more. And I know that that might seem disingenuous because you're going to tell me about lots of other important projects. But outside of that, I do recognize stablecoins exist on other blockchains and they are useful. And I know they exist in certain places on Bitcoin, but, but people are using them. I'm sure Bitcoin is using them. And I know there's a bunch of other projects, things that people are trying to build. And I've got to a place with Ethereum and Solano, anything like that. I think of that as fintech. And I think it's a different space. I think Bitcoin is trying to create best money for the world, subvert the state. These other protocols, they're basically they're basically fintech. They they the focus isn't decentralization, more permissionless. That's where I kind of think about sure. it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I think something that could help us frame the conversation is that like. I think when I see Bitcoiners and Ethereans kind of talking at each other, we're just sort of coming from different places, Uh, which is to say we're looking at the world through different lenses. And I think that the lens that Bitcoiners tend to use, and this totally makes sense, is the lens of money, right? What is that phrase? Fix the money, fix the world. Um, And I think that that's a really powerful lens. It's a great place to start. Um, But I think that the lens that So I have two lenses I use when I look at kind of Ethereum specifically or kind of blockchain cryptocurrency more generally, and those are uh, the lenses of innovation and institutions. Okay. Okay. So in a nutshell, um, to me, Ethereum is an operating system for building human institutions, better human institutions than than the ones we have today. Right? And this is something we have in common is that we are um, extraordinarily skeptical of existing world institutions, whether they be governments, central banks, Big companies, etc., for very good reasons. I mean, we were, we were pre-pandemic. That's only been you know reinforced in in you know to the nth degree in the past couple of years. Um, and and as a result of these different lenses, I think these two communities are optimizing for different things, right? So, Bitcoin again, like the sort of thing that Bitcoiners valued most, and you touched upon this a moment ago, is security, hundred percent, right? Like. Yes, there's innovation in Bitcoin, absolutely. Yes, there's other things that Bitcoiners value. But if ever if you were ever forced to make a choice between innovation and security, Bitcoin's going to go with security. And again, I think that yep. that is of enormous value to the world. I think what the Ethereum community values more... So again, we also value security, right? That matters a lot in, in Ethereum. But, uh, but innovation matters probably more than anything to us. Specifically, innovation along the lines of coordination. And um, human institutions are just tools for coordination. The person who I think has done the best work on this is Nick Szabo, um just, like, his work has been extraordinarily influential and inspirational to me in, in my journey.
1: Do we know what his position is on Ethereum? I I don't know.
0: Okay. I know he's been in some sort of Twitter wars with Vlad Zamfir and some other folks regarding with governance, Bobby. which I think we'll get into because okay. we're going to talk about governance. Um, I mean, he's a Bitcoiner, I guess. So yeah. I'm not sure he likes Ethereum, but I don't want to put words in his mouth. I have okay. no idea. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just, just to reemphasize, right, Ethereum is an A... Operating system for building human institutions. What does that mean? It means that we have things like DAOs being the most obvious example. I mean, Bitcoin itself is a DAO, Ethereum itself is a DAO. And now we have all these um, really genuinely exciting, interesting, innovative DAOs being built at layer two on Ethereum um, that coordinate people around all sorts of crazy things. But again, what we're trying to do really is, is address these coordination problems, these sort of Moloch traps.
1: So can you give me an example of one of these? Because when I think of Ethereum projects... I think of uh something like uh, is Uniswap Uniswap started on Ethereum. Started yeah. on Ethereum is so it that's, that's
0: that's like the first really successful decentralized exchange.
1: Yeah. So I think of Uniswap, I think of cumrocket, I think of like stupid things. And <laughs> there's a lot of stupid things. And I think of stable coins. Um what what interesting stuff is not is not kind of coming like come to the top. Sure, and, like, sure. what are we not seeing?
0: So okay, so I think I need to start with the big three. And mm-hmm. I know you're familiar with all of these. So like anytime a Bitcoin or anyone for that matter pushes back and says Ethereum is a shit coin, there's no value. Well, I say, okay, we have DAOs, we have stable coins, we have NFTs. I think that these are rock solid examples of things that create real value for millions of people around the world today. Um, well, I'd agree on We could stable dig coins. into any, any or all of those, but...
1: I, I, I'll, I'll agree on stable coins. And NFTs is so interesting because that's even split some Bitcoiners. Sure. Um, I've... I had a couple of interviews recently where Bitcoin is like, I like NFTs. I, I'm I'm not there with. I'm, NFTs look, I'm right. not
0: there with digital rocks.
1: Yeah. Basically. Nor am
0: I there with crypto kitties necessarily. Yeah. I, I think we need to look at short and long time frame, right? I think, and I would say the, the same exact thing about ICOs and tokens circa 2017.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Like 99 percent of the ICOs that happened, the coins create the tokens, I should say, created in 2017, lost 99 percent of their value, and that was right that that happened. And here we are now, you know, fast forward three, four years later, we have some really interesting use cases. Um, Shapeshift Decentralization Project is a great example.
1: Yeah, I spoke to Eric about that. Yep. I was fascinated by that. And also,
0: probably could not happen without something like a token on something like Ethereum.
1: I also think the uh, Blockstream BNM token, I can't remember the exact name, that's on Liquid, not because it's on Liquid, but I find that interesting because that is a token. Where you're getting rewards, reward rewarded in Bitcoin for the Bitcoin they mine, I think that was a, that's a super interesting. It's like a idea.
0: mining future or something. Yeah. some way to participate in right. Yeah, it's and token. it's a
1: token, right. and and I think that's also interesting. Right. So
0: again, this goes back to coordination yeah. um, challenges. And yeah, I'm agnostic to whether these things run on Liquid or on Ethereum or on Solana or any of these chains. Um, but just circling back to NFTs like we saw this Cambrian explosion of shitcoins coins in 2017. And as I said, most of them went away, but now here we are a few years later and there mm-hmm. are some, like, we understand best practices. I think as a community, we understand like how to get things like tokenomics right. And I think that we are now in that 2017 era with NFTs and a lot of, I don't know what the shitcoin equivalent, shitrock you know, NFTs, Yeah. right? But fast forward a few years and I think that there's some genuine innovation in there and we will find it. And this sort of dominant design will emerge and I think that that will create a lot of value for a lot of artists.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I look at it all, I just think like there was a point my feed was just constant NFT. like every, every, <laughs> everything, all kinds of, and it was a new series here, a new series there, all yeah. these new series, it's still happening. And and I just think it's like oversupply of of um, of an of an idea. But but like so I no agree.
0: But the thing is, the market will sort that out.
1: Oh, that's fine. But like the one I I do actually look at every now and again. I, I actually think those crypto punks, punks. as art. They're kind of cool. They're kind of interesting.
0: They're on billboards here in New York
1: and other cities yeah, as well. I'm not going to buy one because it's too expensive. But when I look at it, as like most of this stuff I just think is is just mass produced shit. Sure. But but I think the punks are kind of cool. Now I'm not going to buy one because I don't want to buy a hash. I think there's no value in it. I know other people do other people do. The the thing on NFTs I'm interested in is the idea of utility in NFTs. Sure. So this idea I've talked about a few times now. I'm very into the idea of an NFT for a ticket. So, for example, when we went to the Yankees course, yesterday, yeah. send me that as an NFT, and 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 oh, I want to sell it or I want to move it on. I can send it to you, uh, and and you've got it on your wallet. That just seems like like a logical next step. That's
0: Totally low hanging fruit, yeah. obvious.
1: But I don't care what chain that's on. Exactly. Like that could be on Solana. I don't care as long as I get my ticket and I can. it. Because check you're not it. holding
0: it long term. Exactly. Right?
1: So so. Whereas I some of the NFTs, you're like, well, if the chain dies in the long term, this is a problem because the NFT is suddenly. Loses its value. I know nothing really dies, but you know, you know what I mean? But short-term tickets, where it's just a, an actual utility, I think that's interesting.
0: I think it's very interesting. I think there's certain structural obstacles to get there. Right? Yeah. I, I think we will see this in our lifetime.
1: But the Dow, tell me about real-world Dow.
0: Can I just oh, give yeah. you something to chew on before we switch topics? I think, and this is a bit of a big statement, and we could skip over this or we could double-click on it if it's interesting. I think that NFTs are to art as Bitcoin is to money. Right. What I mean by that is that a lot of people early on and for that matter still today look at bitcoin and they're like oh this is just what is it really it's it's a cryptographic signature it's a hash right there's no real value in this i mean you, you know you've spoken to contrarian like sort of anti bitcoiners who have expressed this perspective um and i think that in the same way like like i'm not an artist i don't get art necessarily um but like it's be- i'm beginning to understand that yes it is just a hash but actually it is maybe the next evolution in art and i think we should keep an open mind about that
1: yeah, I guess it's a new mm, medium is what I Yeah, I'm saying. but I guess the difference being is like some bitcoiners believe that bitcoin will ultimately replace all money. I'm not there. I think it's I think it has a symbiotic relationship with sovereign currencies, but I can understand right. the world where they think it gets to and who knows, maybe they're right. Uh unless we end up living in the matrix, I think NFTs are just an, another medium. They sure. don't replace. But this is this
0: is this I see what you're saying they don't yes. replace art, hmm.
1: whereas the goal of Bitcoin for some Bitcoin is just to replace money.
0: If we are living in the metaverse in the future, they will replace art,
1: possibly, yes,
0: <laughs> but that's a separate question.
1: <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna get to live in that world, I don't think I will either. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I see it's like, uh, it's, it's just an, as an additional medium that some artists may or may not use. The change will be the day if, if Banksy ever does an NFT, oh my a real God, one. yeah, not the fake one that happened recently, like if someone like that.
0: I mean, you know, Banksy is the type of artist who, like, will sell art on a street corner for $10 or something, or, or 10 quid, I guess, right? And, and yeah. to, to unsuspecting uh, customers, like, I could, maybe there is already, like, real Banksy NFTs, who knows? Yeah,
1: but we, we will see. I'm, like, I'm, I'm neutral on the future of them. I think there's some things that may come out of them that are, are interesting, but I'm, I'm more focused on money right now. So. I
0: think the likelihood that Bitcoin replaces all money is roughly equivalent to the likelihood that NFTs replace all art. I yeah. really think that there's an interesting yeah. parallel going on here.
1: Yeah, but like, I still think they're different goals. But we're, sure. yeah, we're going we're going there around are. there. Okay. The DAOs. DAOs. Tell me about DAOs. Someone actually re- reached out to me recently and said, Pete, I want to launch a DAO to buy Liverpool Football Club. Would you get involved? I was like, No, because you're not going to buy them. And I don't have time for this nonsense. <laughs> I don't
0: know, man. DAOs are raising crazy money. I was I was at a DAO-focused event the past few days and uh there was a DAO that was created um, ad hoc, just kind of like group of people having a conversation like this. And someone spun up a multi sig and threw some ETH into it. And some of the people kind of aped in. That's like the new terminology mm-hmm. is you ape into things. And uh, at the end of that day, there were more than $3 million in it. And in it's general. still growing rapidly. Um, what so is
1: the DAO? And why this
0: particular DAO? This particular DAO. Oh, too.
1: Okay. Let's take a step back. Some of you listening. Sure.
0: Yes. Let's rewind. What is a DAO? Okay. This is a really hard question to answer. Mm -hmm. So DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, There was an initial DAO... So the idea emerged kind of around 2014, 2015, I think Dan Larimer was one of the first people who proposed this idea in some early writings. There was some idea of a decentralized autonomous corporation, I think a DAC back around that
1: time. The king of blockchains.
0: Separate topic. (laughs) Uh, but so the first DAO that I'm aware of was the, the DAO, uh, very confusing, right? Which, um... Well, the, one, the one that got hacked? The one of 2016. Yeah, well, whether it got hacked or not depends on your definition of hack. Okay. Uh, and I mean, this very quickly gets into... Let's
1: not cover that yeah, one. That's yeah. been done a million times.
0: It has, it has. But it is. it is both like the single most important event in the history of the Ethereum blockchain and community, mm-hmm. right? So it's sort of like our, um, it's like the day that Ethereum lost its, uh, lost its innocence, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So to understand anything about Ethereum today, you do really have to understand the DAO. Yeah. And it's sort of become ancient history in crypto years because it was five years ago, yeah. but it wasn't really that long ago and it was a very traumatic experience for people who lived through it. Anyway, I mean, a DAO at the end of the day is, is a coordination mechanism. It is um, in very concrete terms, it's a smart contract. On a platform like Ethereum, where um, people can contribute value in the form of ETH or, or, or stablecoins or other tokens or things. And um, usually there's some sort of a voting mechanism, right? So in the case of VDAO, it was a it was sort of like a decentralized VC fund. Okay. So the idea was mm-hmm. people throughout the ecosystem contributed. ETH, at that time it was really only ETH. And there were a, a small number of people known as curators, and uh, the curators were responsible for spinning off these little investment vehicles, which were like subcontracts, and then those could be used to invest into investable projects um, at the time, and the idea was that that those projects would pay dividends returns back into the Dow fund, and everyone would kind of benefit from it okay so um I, I think what I'd like to say about did, DAOs, the the
1: the Dow launch. At the launch of Ethereum, or no, no, no,
0: this was was a year or two after Ethereum launched, but it was very early. Ethereum was a very immature platform, right? So, I guess, sorry, to finish the DAO story, right? So, what happened was uh, the project was launched very quickly. It was not like really thoroughly audited. And in the defense of the folks behind it, um, it wasn't intended to get so big, right? It was really, it's exactly what I described a moment ago. It was like a group of friends who were like, hey, this is fucking cool. Let's like, Throw some ETH into this thing and, like, let's see what happens. Let's see if the idea takes off. But the thing is, it's permissionless by design, right? I mean, that's how smart contracts work. Um, and they didn't put in any caps or limits, right? And so a few days later, again, exactly the same phenomenon I just described that I just saw a couple of days ago at this event. Um, there were hundreds of millions of dollars of ETH. In. It was, in fact, it was on the order of 10 or 20% of all the ETH in existence at that time. Wow. And so this is something else people don't understand, is that if the attacker had made off with all that ETH, that would have been... Um, pretty apocalyptic for the network, especially given the plans to transition to proof of stake and stuff, right? So this is one of the reasons that ultimately there was a decision to do a hard fork and return the funds. So yeah, I mean, this story has been told many times. Um, Quick version. Of what happened after that?
1: No, of of the, the hack. Hack.
0: Right. So there was a low-level exploit in the contract code. It was the first time it had ever been identified and it had never been sort of exploited previously. There were some folks like um, Professor Amin uh, Amin Gunsir's team at at Cornell, uh, Phil and a few other folks who actually had identified some of these vulnerabilities prior to the attack happening and had actually posted about them uh, publicly on a blog called Hacking Distributed. So check out the articles there. They're, They're really good explanations of the low level details. Long story short the attacker, for that matter, anyone, because again, this is permissionless, was able to craft a specific type of transaction to the contract that didn't immediately like drain the funds into that attacker's wallet. But what it did was it um, transferred the funds into one of these like subcontracts, and then there's like a cool-off period. I think it was about 30 days. And um, this attacker was able to keep sending these transactions and just keep withdrawing the same funds, or, or I should say, just keep withdrawing funds into this kind of subcontract mm-hmm. over the span of a few days. And um, if no one had intervened, then what would have happened is, you know, 30 days later or so, they would have been able to then subsequently withdraw all of those funds from that subcontract into wherever they wanted, into their own wallet, right? And what happened was people cottoned on to what was going on. And there was this really robust and just, I mean, this this is genuinely like, even Ethereum aside, this is like one of the most interesting stories of all time, certainly one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard. Um, Cammy Russo does a really good job of talking about this in her book, mm-hmm. um, which came out recently, also recommended if you want to understand the Ethereum backstory. Uh, but basically, yeah, there was a group of people around the world on multiple continents who kind of came together. They, they sort of dubbed themselves the White Hat Hacker Group, mm-hmm. uh, and they launched a counterattack. They found the exploit. They exploited it themselves. Um they because they had so many people submitting transactions, they were actually able to dos the attacker so that their transactions ended up getting processed before the tra- attackers did, and they were able to drain most of the funds using the same exploit into into their own wallet, their own subcontract and then um and then they were able to return those funds to to folks later and, and then there was a hard fork, and that's so
1: uh, so how what was the size of the funds that the hacker had managed to drain?
0: Uh, I think they ended up with something on the order of like 20% of the DAO or something. So, um, like I said, the DAO, I mean, ETH was also, you know, the price was changing at this time. It was, it was some hundreds of millions of dollars. So the attacker probably had something on the order of like 30, 40, 50 million, something like that. But the white hat hackers had the
1: rest. And this became a real point of contention because it was like, shall we hard fork? Or is code is law?
0: Exactly. This and is so this is also a fascinating piece of lore when the attacker started their attack they posted a message i think it was like encoded into the first transaction that they sent something like that so it's actually there on the blockchain you can actually read it you can decode it and it says something to the effect of thank you for creating this contract thank you for putting money in it i'm going to use the feature that allows me to withdraw all the funds to my address have a nice day which is basically i mean code is law I don't wear I put my hat. I'm wearing a hat that says, trust the code, it's fine. It's, it's over there. Um, but so yeah, if you believe the code is law, um, then the attacker was not breaking any rules. And so again, this is this was the schism in governance in Ethereum that led to the hard fork that it was. it's called an irregular state transition. So it mm-hmm. violated the rules of the protocol and the funds that the attacker had made off with, it, it transferred them back to the original owners or back to the DAO or something like that, right? And of course, what, the network that became known as Ethereum Classic chose to keep mining on the original chain not participate in that hard fork because they believe the code is law and it should be immutable.
1: So the hacker got to keep their funds on Ethereum Classic? On Ethereum Classic, correct. Do, do we know if they ever moved?
0: That's a good question. I mean, we could probably find out pretty yeah, it'd easily. Yeah, be
1: interesting. Okay, so how much debate was there around having the fork? How contentious was it? I mean, obviously, if Ethereum Classic... Uh, was created, there were obviously people who disagreed, but it's one of those ones where I was, I, I kind of wrestled with it. I always try and like, think on both sides. And I think code is law. If you're going to build something immutable, great. But at the same time, somebody has stolen... Uh, this is this is essentially a, a theft. Depends how you describe it. It's an exploit. For example...
0: Well, so, I mean, it's it's pretty clear... I'm agreeing with you. It's pretty clear that that was not the intended use case of the contract, although that is the way the code worked.
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, but like, I don't want to have an exploit in the code in my bank and have my funds taken. But
0: this is is the thing about governance is that there has to be human interpretation, right?
1: Exactly. But like, ultimately, I I think it was a bad decision. I ultimately think code is law. I do. But at the same time, seeing where Ethereum is now, and I consider it as fintech, it's it's not something I'd like to ever happen on Bitcoin. But why I consider... Ethereum is like fintech. I'm kind of like, eh. perhaps it's perhaps that's a differentiator that Ethereum has and, and actually is a, a, a separation from Bitcoin. But I think it's a really tricky one. Mainly, I think mainly I think it's wrong because I think the people who made the decision were the people who lost their funds.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think they're. It's either skin in the game or conflict of interest, depending on yeah. how you look at it. Just just as a point of contrast, there was another event that happened in Ethereum in, oh boy, I think it was late 2018, early early 2019. Was that
1: something that got frozen?
0: Yeah. So this was a parity multi sig yeah. wallet, right? And again, similar amount of money. It was at that time on the equivalent million. of 200 million yeah. US dollars, most of which belonged to the Web3 Foundation and, and a host of other projects. Um, that had raised ICOs and were storing their funds in this multisig contract. It didn't get stolen. It got frozen. Frozen. Yeah. Right. Because of that. an exploit that, that mm-hmm. someone uh, DevOps ninety nine <laughs> was their handle. Um, sort of took advantage of. Wh- whether intentionally or not we don't know. And there was a lot of controversy in the time at, at that time about whether or not we should do another hard fork and whether or not um, we should restore those funds. Um, and it got close. I don't think it was ever close. It was oh. definitely debated a lot, but it was pretty clear that... So again, this begins to get into Ethereum governance yeah. that the people who make those decisions were pretty opposed to it and it was not likely to happen. But you know, the consequence of that like, was that a lot of the folks there, the Web3 Foundation folks, the parity folks, sort of mostly left the ecosystem and now they have their own ecosystem, which is Polka dots. You kind of have to consider like, if the hard fork hadn't happened the first time around with the DAO, like, maybe those people would have gotten pissed off and left and done their own thing or something.
1: I mean, I, I assume... Polkadot's another one of these protocols that RDA one's using and raised a lot of money and made people rich. <laughs> just, I don't have any opinion there's on that. So I mean, they of they them. did raise a lot of money. There's so many of these special things. Um, how many people do you think were. What's the fewest f- number of people who were able to make that decision
0: to fork
1: Ethereum? The original DAO? Yeah.
0: So just to be clear, I wasn't around at the time. Okay. I, I joined the community. What do you think? Like, like, is it something that we
1: like. It could be a couple of people who make that decision. I think okay.
0: at that time, I mean, you know, Vitalik's voice has always been influential. People have always looked up to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot more decision makers in the community today than there were at that time. I, I again, I don't know, but my my guess is at that time, Vitalik weighing in in support of a hard fork, uh, seeing what like that may have been enough to tip the scale. Okay, a single person. Okay. Now again, that I think that that may not be the case today, but it was the case at that time.
1: Okay, fine. It's a good setup. We should probably now talk about the Ethereum Foundation. Like, what is it? Every time there seems to be a foundation created in any protocol, it it seems to go wrong because a foundation implies some kind of centralization. The Bitcoin Foundation failed. Um, there was an attempt at creating a similar one a couple of years ago that got disbanded just because people disagreed with it. Um, um, so... Explain who the Ethereum Foundation is, what it is, what it's designed to do.
0: I'll do my best. Um, so, yeah, so by way of background, I first touched blockchain, Bitcoin, Ethereum, late 2016, and then getting into early 2017, I was sort of taking some time off work at that time, and so I was in an exploratory mode. Um, learned about it, was fascinated by it, hadn't sort of previously, it hadn't clicked for me before because I had been a founder of a startup, and I think I'd just been very heads down mode up to that point. Um, sort of went down the rabbit hole very rapidly here in New York, you know, started attending meetups like BitDevs, which I mentioned, some kind of Ethereum events as well, Um, and attended the Ethereum DevCon 3, which happened in November, I think, October, November 2017 in Cancun. And uh, went down there as a volunteer, literally no nothing. I mean, I walked into the room having no clue what a smart contract was, more or less. And um, because I was a volunteer, I was working alongside the organizers, which which was the Ethereum Foundation, um, and got a chance to kind of be a fly on the wall for a lot of the research meetings that were happening there kind of prior to the conference. And, um, yeah, was, was hired by the Ethereum Foundation shortly after that. So November, December, 2017, um, worked as a contractor for the foundation. Uh, basically everyone aside from the directors, um, are, are contractors. That's just how the foundation works, uh, for a couple of years. Um, and then parted ways in 2019. Uh, I. We don't. There weren't really titles, but I was a core developer. I was working on a particular piece of the technology called um, Ewasm, Ethereum flavored WebAssembly, which was a plan to build a new smart contract virtual machine for Eth two. Um, but also doing a lot of advocacy, a lot of traveling, a lot of education, a lot of hosting meetups, hiring, um, speaking at events, that kind of stuff, uh, and governance. Ultimately, that's like a kind of you know was hired sort of in this hybrid role as an MBA, as someone with kind of founder experience running startups to uh, act as an internal consultant, kind of interview all the individual teams and kind of figure out ways to introduce better like management practices at the foundation. And that, that's a whole separate story about what happened there.
1: Um, Let me just try and understand the Ethereum foundation though. Is that is it essentially a governance advocacy and development nonprofit? It's
0: a nonprofit, so it is a Swiss Stiftung to be specific, which mm-hmm. is a foundation structure. It has uh some number of directors. Um I don't know if it has like an officially stated mission, but I mean, I guess it's sort of promote the health of the Ethereum network and ecosystem. Um, and it was so again, there's a little bit of backstory here, right? You have to understand how Ethereum was created. Um again, Kemi Russo tells this story really well in her book and in more detail than I could in this conversation. The infant, Infinite Machine is what that book is called. Yeah. But, but basically, there was dissension among the ranks, right? There was some something like 10-ish people who had come together to build Ethereum, right? People including Gavin Wood and, and, uh, and Joe Lubin and Vitalik and, and a few others. Um, and long story short, there was a decision about whether Ethereum would be a for-profit company or a non-profit. And Vitalik made the final decision. And- Ethereum would be. Ethereum, Right. So it there, there was. A, a it wasn't a legal entity. There was a group of people writing some code, yeah. and I think they got a sense that this was had potentially be quite big, right? This is like twenty fifteen, mm-hmm. and Joe Lubin, as the story is told, you know, really wanted to create a for profit company. Um, who else was involved? There were a couple of other folks involved. So
1: it would be a corporate block. Charles
0: Hoskinson was briefly the CEO of Ethereum. Yeah, really interesting backstory there, right? But again, correct, right? The idea was: would it be a corporation? What would it be? Vitalik made the decision to make it a non-profit.
1: I kind of feel like it probably should have been. Because if,
0: if you think about it, it's... Should have been a for-profit, you're saying? I,
1: I think it should have been, Because I think if it's not for-profit, it, it should strive for maximum decentralization. And I don't find Ethereum strives for maximum decentralization. I think it makes compromises on decentralization for throughput and uh, the ability to build certain things. And by the way, you know how... I'm technical I am but that's my kind of impression but like if it was a company
0: what do you think would be different if it was a company
1: uh I think uh it would be a fintech decentralized it, no sorry a permissionless fintech layer for be able to build fintech technologies on and I think it would have less of a war with bitcoin because mm. it wouldn't be about it being money it would be about it <laughs> cuz one of the things like I think is interesting in the world of Fintech is this idea that I don't have to go and create logins everywhere. There's just, I can have a hardware wallet, right. and I can move assets from one person to another. like And that's down to the people building it to allow me to do that. And that kind of fintech layer, I think, is kind of interesting in some ways. So It's
0: interesting how we keep coming back to fintech because, yeah. yes, that is one of the things that you can do with Ethereum. Certainly, it's happening with DeFi. But I think what I'm suggesting is, to me, and I think to a lot of people who are very deep into it, it, it it's a lot more than that, or at least it has oh, potential. Right? This goes back to that thing I said about operating system for building better human institutions.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm certainly going to trigger some people with these kind of ideas. And I guess if it was a company, then the DAOs would be less interesting because...
0: If it was a company, here's the thing. It would have shareholders, yeah, and it would have accountability to their shareholders. It would have a fiduciary duty. And again, this starts to get into but governance. Yeah. I think this is one of the issues with the foundation is that in any normal scenario, a foundation, in fact, again, I don't know what the rules in Switzerland are, but I, like here, for example, a foundation is required to raise a certain amount of its operating budget from donors mm-hmm. every cycle, every year, whatever it is, right? Um, and then by definition, it has accountability to those donors. And the thing about a foundation that was endowed with 3 million Ether, as I think the Ethereum Foundation was, right? That's a lot of money. Yeah. It's billions of dollars today. Um is that it doesn't have any accountability to anybody, period,
1: full stop. But This is what it comes down to. It kind of has shareholders. Because they're not shareholders like by the traditional term, but proxy shareholders in terms of the people who hold a lot of ETH, who have an interest in the direction of Ethereum, whether they bought them or they gained them as part of the pre-mine. So this whole war about pre-mines, I only think matters if you're trying to create the best money in the world. I don't think anyone else cares. Like, Bitcoiners hate the pre-mine, but they're trying to compare two things that are slightly different. Right. I don't see it. I, I see Ethereum, even if it is decentralized and not a company, I still see it like a, see it like a company. I, I consider the pre-mine is just the shares that the founders got. True. Sure. Uh, I think that's a
0: reasonable first uh, approximation. And, and
1: therefore, it kind of has proxy shareholders. Right.
0: So, okay, a couple of things to talk about here. The first is that, let me be very clear, uh, the pre-mine ultimately was the... Biggest reason I left Ethereum. Okay. Period. There were other reasons involving Ethereum Foundation, governance. We could talk about those. But, you know, look, I previously worked in traditional finance. I worked for a hedge fund a few blocks from here and then in Hong Kong after that. And um, felt that, like, my role in the world, my role in human society was a cog in a machine that was making rich people richer. And that's an oversimplification, just to be clear. I mean, there are like pension funds and things, ordinary people's pensions that invest in things like hedge funds, okay? So it's an oversimplification, but that's what I felt like after a few years of doing this. And, you know, I started this job in 2006, was there through the financial crisis. I'm a very values-driven person, and I felt that I wasn't able to live up to those values in that role, okay? Fast forward a few years, went back to school, started a company, sold the company, got into Ethereum.
1: You're about to say the same thing happened again
0: that's where I'm going with the story. It's fairly obvious, right? But so look, the first year in Ethereum, I said, I'm going to keep an open mind. I don't care what they pay me. I don't care if they pay me. I want to maximize learning. I want to travel. And thank you, Ethereum Foundation, for giving me the opportunity to do that. It was very eye-opening. But after a year, 18 months, I was like, holy shit, like, what am I really doing here? I'm really pumping Joe Lubin's bags. All due respect to Joe Lubin and all the other, you know, Ethereum whales. Um, It's just not what I want to do. And the reason for that was largely the pre-mine, right? Because at that moment, 70%, 70%, 7-0, mm-hmm. okay? 70% of all the ether in existence, as of a couple of years ago, um, had been distributed in the prima. Today, it's about 60%. It's been diluted a little bit, right? So I don't know where you draw. I don't know what the right number is. I mean, we will never have another Bitcoin. We'll never have another immaculate conception. Again, I don't know if the right number is 10%, 15%, 20%. You could draw the line wherever you want. 70, is 80, 70, 60. Is, is, it's too much. It's, it's just too much by and, almost an order of magnitude.
1: And who... Who are the biggest holders within that? I know Vitalik, but I don't… Vitalik's holdings are public, by the way. He's very transparent. And I don't… The strange thing about Vitalik is I don't see him as financially driven. He's not. Trust me. I know him. He's not. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas Joe Lubin clearly is. He's a businessman. Yeah. So, Vitalik, Joe Lubin. Who are the other like key Charles Hoskinson… Perhaps.
0: I mean, here's the thing. We we other than the very small number of people like Vitalik who are public, you know, also the Ethereum Foundation multi-sig wallet mm-hmm. address is public. We we don't know.
1: Okay. We, we don't
0: know. know. We genuinely I mean I, I you know I can assume that the people who happen to be the crypto bros that happened to be in the room at that time and the very small number of investors who kind of got Ethereum circa 2015 did very well.
1: Okay. Right. All right. So so you've joined the family. But the point is
0: it's on the order of a few hundred people, maybe a thousand, maybe a couple thousand people. right? It's a very small number of people.
1: But within that, there's a few who have very significant interest. Yeah,
0: it's a very long tail, and you know, I've heard rumors. This is totally anecdotal. That like a very small number of individuals, like one or two ish people, single handedly bought up like very large percentages of the pre of the the pre mine basically the, the ICO. Okay. Um, because they were able to participate pseudonymously, there were no limits.
1: Okay, so you joined the foundation. Twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Right? You are a Bitcoiner, but also interested in Ethereum. And and you're not hugely financially driven, but um, you're interested in Ethereum is what it can be and what it can do. The social side. Yeah. So you're joining the foundation to contribute to that. You feel like this is a good use of your time.
0: I felt like Ethereum was the most important project in the world at that moment. That's why I wanted to contribute
1: to it. Because you— Not because you want to create NFTs, because you think (laughs) you can— you can rebuild human, institutions, human institutions, institutions, better institutions, which we all know are broken right now. Uh, interestingly, the long conversation I had yesterday with Rob Hamilton was yesterday, no, the day before, was about how institutions have been broken by the broken monetary system, which was really interesting. But anyway, so you want to? Uh, we don't need to debate whether it can or can't. Some people say, "Dad's a fucking stupid." Some think, "Yeah, great." It doesn't even matter right now. That was what your goal was. Correct. Okay.
0: Also, just learning about, like, I'm a computer scientist, first and foremost. I'm a software developer. I'm also, like, an armchair economist. I've Mm -hmm. always been deeply fascinated by economics, by anthropology, by the study of human institutions, coordination, uh, jurisprudence, law, things like that, right? And so Ethereum just tied together all these different threads for me. And and money as well. I mean, I had a background working in finance as well. So I was like, holy shit, this is, like, the seven things I'm most passionate about. This project touches all of them. Okay. So it was just... Like, head exploded, stare at the wall for 30 minutes to, like, let it all sink in. Okay, I want to work on this. And they gave me the opportunity to do that.
1: Great. So you join in 17, and you leave in 19.
0: And I spent 20, all of 2018 and the first part of 2019, just almost nonstop on the road, traveling conference to conference, meeting people, doing sprints with my team, like, roughly 50% advocacy, social stuff, 50% technical stuff. And the advocacy included a lot of governance stuff.
1: So where did things go wrong? When? Where? where what was the point where you're like, hmm, hmm, I... I'm not sure what I'm doing here. I'm not sure what this is. What? What? Can you talk me through that?
0: Yeah, I don't think there was a particular moment. I think it was like my experience with the Ethereum Foundation was negative from almost from the very beginning. Um, and I can explain what that means. Yep. It, it's interesting because as I touched upon earlier, like I still think very highly of Ethereum as a project, as a community, mm-hmm. as a technology, as a platform. Um, and I don't think very highly of the Ethereum Foundation given my experiences there. And I think just it's important to emphasize that like these things can both be true, right? Okay. Um, and so what kept me there was my love for the project and the people I met. As long as What kept me there as long as I was there mm-hmm. was my love for those things in spite
1: of um, the negative experiences I had with the foundation. So, And, and, and did it get to the point where you were, because cons- you can still do your work, your advocacy work, or did you get to the point where you felt you actually were ethically compromised in doing your work?
0: That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think probably there was an ethical conflict there because of what I said, because of the, the pre-mine. That's that's what I'm saying. That for me was sort of the, the final straw. There were a host of other things, but I was like, look, I can deal with these things. The Ethereum foundation wasn't paying me well. They weren't treating me well. They weren't treating a lot of people well. Um, there's a lot, a whole host of like internal, um, management and and governance issues. Maybe I could overlook all of that for the project and for my love of the project. But so I guess maybe the answer to your question is when I became more active. Again, just to be clear, right, started late 2017. I said, look, I'll give it 12 to 18 months. I'm just gonna sit down, shut the fuck up, do the best work I can do, um, be the better person, and give this a chance to sort itself out. It didn't, right? So fast forward 12 to 18 months, my level of discomfort and that exactly, that ethical, um, I'm remembering now, actually, I, I have almost PTSD over this because I had a lot of sleepless nights in early 2019. And I think that it was me wrestling with my conscience. And that's what led me, after those 18 months had had passed in early 2019, to become more activist, take a more activist role. And so one of the things I was trying to do was create a new foundation, right? Okay. Not replace the Ethereum Foundation, not destroy the Ethereum Foundation, um, but just create another pole of influence in the ecosystem. And there was a lot of support for this. A
1: completely separate foundation.
0: Completely separate foundation, because I felt that the Ethereum Foundation was irreparably broken.
1: You wrote something on your medium about this, didn't you, about governance?
0: I wrote a lot about governance. Yeah. I, there was a tweet you may be referring to which was 20 I think it was April of 2019 where I tweeted that Ethereum governance has failed. And this was a tweet tweet thread where I went on to explain and again I had been very 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 active in Ethereum had governance. You quit at that point. What, no, this what, sort of precipitated that.
1: Is this your Jerry Maguire moment? I think so. I mean so <laughs> let me let me I say. had one. In, I had one in advertising. So <laughs> Uh, I just want to like so I had a very I used to work in advertising and I loved it and then by the time I hated it because I realized my job was to convince people to buy shit they didn't need and work weekends for, for people I didn't like pay me to do a job that was just didn't... Like, (laughs) advertising had lost its creativity. I like old-school advertising. Mad Mad, Mad Men style. Mad Men style, yeah. yeah. Where it's it's an art director and a copywriter working together to create beautiful ideas. And the industry got destroyed because there's too many channels. It just became bullshit. So I wrote this. I'll I'll share it with you. I wrote this big thing called uh, online... Bear in mind, I had a digital advertising agency. And the piece was called Online Advertising Does Not Work. And I wrote the whole thing. It was like... Why and where it's flawed, but how it can be better. And our website, we just made that our home page and I sent it out to all my clients. Amazing. And then I think I'd quit within six months after yeah, that. Yeah. It's very it didn't do what I wanted it to do. Right. You know, it didn't. I, I wanted it to be like Jerry Maguire's moment, which he wanted, where like everyone would turn around and go, Yeah, this is great. Yeah, we, we and then it's like, no.
0: Yeah. Um, Very know. similar. So yeah. I actually wrote exactly that piece about Ethereum. Germ- I germ- have germ- that right. piece about the the ten ways I think Ethereum is broken. And how I think I
1: it. read it, but I think I read it in nineteen.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. This would have been nineteen. So there was this tweet thread. And I mean, it was just, again. It was just I'm a very values-driven person, and yeah. I like probably saw the writing on the wall and knew that this would bad, be bad for me personally, for my career, for my you know personal brand, whatever. I didn't give a fuck. Like that's why you and I are having this conversation now, because again, I think that this is a story that needs to be told. I, I I was I was helping run the main Ethereum governance mechanism, which is this thing called All Core Devs, this call that happens uh, fortnightly with all the teams around the world that are developing you know the, the core clients. Um, you know was was in literally. In the smoky back rooms mm-hmm. at these events, sitting at the table with the decision makers. In fact, I have another. Yes, I think this is what you're referring to in Medium. There was a post called "How, how much, how much, how open is too open? How how transparent is too transparent? Something like that. Mm-hmm. We can find it and link it. Um, where I actually, like this is just like for me from the beginning, Ethereum was always about creating value for the world for everyday people, right? And again, about dismantling these shitty. Institutions and existing hierarchies and power structures we have in the world and to find myself in these rooms around these tables with a bunch of wealthy white dudes from primarily Europe and North America Making decisions about a network worth billions of dollars, you know paternalistically um, Changing
1: the monetary policy
0: the monetary policy. We can talk about that how that happened, right? It it made me very uncomfortable and I wanted to share that message with the world Wanted to share this experience and people really didn't like that. It made them very uncomfortable
1: So God, there's so many things to talk about.
0: I know Right. (laughs) right
1: let's start with the response to the tweet thread just give me the short version i just i think i need that to to know that now yeah. i'm going to imagine some support some hate
0: some small degree of support from really close friends yeah. and that's kind of what got me through it like people reaching out privately right in DMs saying i totally agree it's
1: always privately always dms right <laughs> yeah.
0: a lot of hate I and mean, okay. you you it's funny when you and i first discussed having this conversation during this episode you said, be prepared for backlash. And I was like, dude, like, maybe it'll happen, but it can't possibly be worse than what I experienced in 2019. It was bad. It was really, I'd never experienced anything like it up to that point in my life. Um, you know, I, there are like long threads on Reddit of people calling me an evil, you know, baby eating monster. And like, even people that I consider friends kind of suddenly... Deciding that I had become evil and been corrupted by the Bitcoiners or something that I was a Trojan horse sent in to destroy Ethereum, conspiracy theories. It was wild. Um, meditation got me through it. Honestly, do you,
1: do you think it's because there's people who genuinely disagree with you, and do you think it's also because people felt their bags got threatened? I think it's, I think it's the latter, right? I
0: think it's this immune, autoimmune response, right? It, it, it's tribalism is really what it comes down mm. to. Like if people disagree, like that's and there are people who disagree and who did engage with me constructively and said hey Lane you have these ideas about a new foundation about a better way to fund the public good right then we're able to achieve right now let's talk about that let's let's poke holes in this um but 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 I mean it was mostly just vitriol
1: right okay
0: this is the problem with social media okay I had great conversations in person in defense of people right
1: but well that's the, that's always the way I I of all the dicks I've dealt with on Twitter only one's done it in public like in person and I was like Ooh what are you fucking doing? Like, let's have a beer and let's talk, let's talk
0: this through. 99% of the time that, yeah. that works.
1: <laughs> but, but, but he was like, no, and he was like, completely lost his shit with me in public. I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going leave.
0: Incidentally, there's, there's, there's another thread here. This is actually, I think, the biggest issue with virtual governance, things like DAOs and like cloud states. You know, Balaji speaks a lot about this yeah. vision of like a network state or a cloud state. There's I've learned about another project two days ago that's working on this, which is very exciting. I don't think you can govern something Strictly, like pseudonymously online, like people just revert to being trolls. I think you need to put flesh, you know, human beings in meat space in the same room together, over beers or whatever, you know.
1: There's So many things in life, Danny. Imagine we were doing this, this interview over. If we did this online, at Zoom. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an, it's an yeah. entirely, entirely different interview. It had to be in person. I agree. You told, them, like, there's certain interviews have to be in person. Yeah. Okay, forget COVID. There was a period of time where I would travel to interviews, not travel to interviews, but certain ones had to be in person. When I interviewed Hester Peirce, I knew I had to yeah. go yeah. to the SEC. Well, not to mention our friend Bukele. President Bukele, I had to do that one. Well, both of those in person. Yeah. There are certain ones, you have to do in person. This yeah. had to be in, in person. Yeah.
0: Okay. I have to say, as an avid listener of the show, there's a difference. I can tell as a consumer.
1: Me, as the guy doing it, yeah. uh, there was a period of time when I was doing them online during COVID, Yeah. it stopped being... Um, Something I enjoyed doing became a job. Yeah. Right. Watch ones today. Watch ones tomorrow. Right. Here's my notes. Do it. I'll be there an hour yet. Nearly. It's just shit. These ones, I just love them. It's just, it's a different experience.
0: And listen, kudos to you for doing the backbreaking work of pounding the pavement and going around and doing this in person. Like, as someone who did this myself for a couple of years in Ethereum, you know, I flew hundreds of thousands of miles. Like I know how difficult it is to like live out of hotel rooms and stuff. So but but it's appreciated. It's sort of work.
1: It's worked out okay. It's a good life. Like I could complain sure. about it, but I'm i have been very, do it while you can because
0: I feel like it doesn't get any easier as we get older.
1: <laughs> well, like we've we've said we're going to get we're going to try and get studio in yes. Austin next March for a whole month before Bitcoin 2022. Amazing. And we're going to fly people in and, and have one base Rogan style. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> style, but just. Just so I can get all the right people in, yeah. in like it's the, like, it's it's almost as central as I can get. Texas in some yeah. way. I can get the California people in, I can get the New York people in, I can get the Texas people in, and we're going to try that for a month. Jeremy here is going to come and help us with the uh, camera work. Amazing. Hopefully Emma will be here as well, helping with everything, and and that gives us a chance to just try and have a base. I don't yeah. think we'll ever have a permanent base, yeah. but just and we can do two months of shows, and every single pers- person in person conversation is going to be better yeah because it's real yeah. you get emotion you get you get the peripheral vision you know you get to relax in a chair
0: dude it's... we we we're all we all love technology yeah. like we all live largely <laughs> virtual lives we all went into the pandemic thinking this is i mean obviously it sucks but like let's make the most of it i got my first vr headset you know mm-hmm. i'm so tired of it. i'm so done like yeah. maybe this is just a generational thing like maybe you know our kids generation or something like they, they will really live in the metaverse but um
1: i'm very old fashioned but it had to be in person and i'm glad it is yeah um, so, I, I think the best question to ask is, how did Ethereum governance fail, like why did it fail? Yeah, it's a great question. Um,
0: again, there's a lot of pieces here to look at, but um, so let's set aside the Ethereum foundation for a moment and talk about kind of Ethereum, like the protocol, the technology, yeah. right?
1: And then, perhaps, okay, perhaps tell us how you think it should have worked. I'd rather th- hear how it should work and then hear how it failed rather than the other way. You think so? Starting with how it should work, and yeah, I feel like, because I, feel like, I want to start with the the purity of what it how you okay you've tried it
0: then I can try yeah so I think so actually this is this is interesting because it touches upon a difference maybe the core difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum right mm-hmm. so Bitcoin has I, I don't sort of know that much about how Bitcoin arrived in this place, because it was already in this place in 2017 when I really got into the ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a place of kind of like, it's not no governance, but it's like minimal, 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 minimal governance, right? Like, when shit hits the fan in Bitcoin, when a bug is discovered or something, like, there's definitely enough kind of coordination mechanisms in place that those things are addressed quickly, the message yeah. gets out, miners upgrade, et cetera, right? So there is, you can't say there's no Bitcoin governance, but- um, But that's
1: important. You need, you need that.
0: Right. And that's, that's sort of needs space social governance, right? Yeah.
1: And it's like disaster scenarios. Okay
0: right exactly but but not only right i mean uh taproot is really interesting right there's a governance mechanism by which that and schnorr signatures and all these kind of like there are technical up- upgrades happening to yeah. bitcoin right um it, but it is by design very slow like kind of yeah. snail's pace it's hard to change exactly by design um ethereum kind of has the worst of both worlds okay so it's kind of like in between, right? And so let me try to explain. So you have the spectrum, right? So on the one hand, you have kind of like absolute, absolute, absolute minimal governance, which is Bitcoin. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you have, um, you have like formalized governance structures. You have something that resembles the governance of this country or some other like nation state or something, right? You have like, uh, you have voting, you have democracy, you have a notion of identity, you have like participatory institutions, ideally less extractive and more kind of participatory, inclusive institutions, um, which, are not doing so amazing right now, but yeah. at least you know it's better than the alternative. Um, you know, you have like legislative assemblies, you have courts, et cetera. You have kind of all this like rigid, like formal governance. Ethereum is kind of right in the middle. And it is very, very, very much a case of this thing called the tyranny of structurelessness. Uh tyranny of tyranny of structurelessness refers to an essay written by someone named Joe Freeman in the 70s. It came out of like a women's rights feminism movement. Um, it's short. It's 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 when I read when I encountered this and read it. Like it sent chills down my spine because it spoke so directly to what I was experiencing in in Ethereum, right? And so what tyranny of structurelessness structurelessness refers to is the fact that human society, human institutions and organizations always have hierarchy, always. It cannot be avoided, right? Anytime you have uh, more than kind of two or three people sitting in a room together, you know, fighting over scarce resources, figuring out how to allocate time, making some decision, some hierarchy just emerges, right? And so you can kind of either choose to formalize that hierarchy into institutions and roles and, you know, democracy and things like that. Or you can just let this, this, this structure-less kind of tyranny emerge, right? And so this is kind of like what's happened in Ethereum. It's what happens in a lot of these institutions and organizations that kind of sweep governance under the rug and, you know, kind of like stick their fingers in the ears and say like, we don't need governance. We don't need governance. We're, you know, better than that. We're smarter than that. We don't like Politics, right? This is the thing, is yeah, you know,
1: people it sounds like an argument against anarcho-capitalism. I have to ask your friend uh, Michael Mellis for his well, so opinion this, on this. So this is one of the things whereby um, I get into some right, discussions. Yeah, I get yeah. called a cuck and a yeah. status. Statist because cuck, yeah. Status cuck. And it's not because I love government, right. I think it's great. Uh, I just believe that we need we we as humans naturally organize yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And humans can be greedy and evil. Yeah. And therefore, we're better off having democracy and institutions that right. uh, are responsible right. for us rather right. than having just like an open structure. But I'm open to the debate and right. sure, happy to listen to both sides. I'm just on the side, I I, I prefer the idea of small government if we could sure. do it. No,
0: so, I, look, I, I need to read yeah, this. I have very similar political sensibilities to you. Yeah. Um, it's another reason I was excited to have this conversation. And I had exactly those thoughts as I was just listening to that conversation that you had with Michael. Um, look, at the end of the day, like, these structures are designed to enfranchise and protect the needs of the minority. Like, I shouldn't say the minority, I should say the, like, you're gonna have this elite group that emerges in in any of these kind of chaotic scenarios. And again, I have firsthand experience with this in Ethereum, I'm sure it's happened and is happening all over the world in many situations. And the elites are gonna do quite well for themselves, right? But then you're gonna have this large group of people who, for one reason or another, you know, maybe in the case of a project like Ethereum, they're just like latecomers to, to, the, to the project, the right? The, the, the peasants, exactly. The proletariat, like the elite structures have already ossified. They've already emerged right at that mm-hmm. point in time. Like when I joined the project, for example, and said, so, like, there was a very clear class difference 2017, 2018, when I was in the project between pre-sale people, pre-pre-sale people and post-pre-sale people, because Ethereum had, you know, 100x, 1000x, whatever by then. Right. So like there was this very small group of people who all knew each other, all trust each other, had these working relationships were making the decisions. And on top of that, had, they were post post economic, right. They kind of had this like economic security. So they don't like care if they're getting paid. Um, and then there was kind of the rest of us who have like, you know, bills to pay and like realities and have to keep our feet on the ground. And so this is like the kind of issues I think that, that are, are not well addressed by tyranny of structurelessness. So, so, I think to answer your question, circling back, I, again, I think the Ethereum kind of has the worst of both worlds, being kind of in the middle. I think that if Ethereum, on the one hand, were to say, we don't want a foundation, we don't want governance, we want to stop evolving the protocol, then Ethereum could go in the Bitcoin direction. And maybe it's too late for that, right? And, and maybe maybe that's bit, not but the, right. But
1: the Bitcoin protocol does evolve.
0: It does, it does, it does. But as I said, but, but kind of much more slowly, and, yeah. and it optimizes for security. Ethereum is optimizing for innovation, two different things.
1: And I think that I Bitcoin is doing two things. It's optimizing for security. I agree with that. I also think it's optimizing for the best money ever. Sure. I, I don't know what the... Uh, the monetary policy of Ethereum. What, what, no, Nobody knows. Uh, but the, the monetary policy of Bitcoin just doesn't change. Right. And there are people who work on Bitcoin who are con- core contributors or the people have... There's like... What if the people have access to the... Github, like the- commit access. Yeah, yeah the commit access. Core developers, basically. The core developers. The handful who maybe have that. They may be big Bitcoin holders. I don't know. But I never feel like decisions are being made to make Bitcoin worth more money. Uh, Bitcoin worth more. I think what they're doing is trying to build the best money that ever existed and not fuck up.
0: Don't you think that has largely- been accomplished, hasn't Bitcoin? Bitcoin kind of won that
1: already. Yeah, but there's, there's. I think there's more stuff to do. I sure. think there's more on the. There's, pri- more to do. there's more on the privacy side, and there's more just uh, uh, the most interesting stuff is at the higher le- layers now. Anyway, for sure. What I'm saying is, it, uh, I 100 trust and believe in the people who have commit access and the core contributors. It's a. It is the mission. I think for you on Ethereum, it was the mission.
0: But here's so here's the thing as well. Ethereum is a big tent, okay. Whereas Bitcoin has this kind of toxic maximalism culture and this kind of like autoimmune response, which we talked about before. Ethereum is kind of the opposite. Ethereum is kind of like welcomes you with open arms and unicorns and rainbows and, and you know, avocado toast and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the, the downside of that is that Ethereum does not have a mission. It doesn't. Like you will ask 10 Ethereans, 10 core contributors, you'll get 10 different answers. And this, I think just to complete the thought i was saying before ethereum has sort of worst of both worlds i think the answer to your question is i I think ethereum cannot and will not go the bitcoin direction so i think that what ethereum should do is go in the other direction and it should have a constitution like i I think a constitution might be like bitcoiners would laugh at this idea i don't think it's appropriate for bitcoin Mm -hmm. but it could be appropriate for ethereum right and then once Mm -hmm. you have this core statement of shared values, shared principles this ethos in writing, sure, not everyone's going to agree
1: with it. How the fuck do you ever get that? There'll be arguing over every word. We tried.
0: We had a conference in 2018 when we tried
1: to do this, and it, we failed. <laughs> what do you think Ethereum is trying to be? Like, I say Bitcoin is trying to be the best money that exists. Right. And right? that's very clear, and people yeah. agree about and, that. And, and, and the, That's kind of like what defines
0: you as a Bitcoiner, is like, do you agree or disagree with the statement? And,
1: and therefore, everything they do, uh, whether it's Layer 2 technology, whether it's Taproot, anything, it's like, does this make Bitcoin better money? And I believe right. every time it does... For you, forget everyone else, sure. what do you think Ethereum's snappy message should be, mission?
0: It should be what I said before. It should be, and I've had a lot of practice and a yeah. lot of time to think about this, It should be to, to be the best operating system for building better human institutions, period, full stop. Right. But not everyone agrees with that. We have other narratives, right? It's all down to the narrative.
1: Hmm.
0: Seeing how the Ethereum narrative has like evolved since the beginning is fucking mind blowing. You go back to the very early days, like 2014, 2015 days, you see Gavin Wood talking about his vision for Web3, um, you know, having primitives, not just compute, but also things like messaging and storage, those never really emerged. Uh, the decentralized global computer, the Ethers money meme, I mean, that's like a big one, that now the, the new ultrasound money, you know, kind of narrative, the there, there isn't a single narrative, that's kind of- the,
1: the ultrasound money is just so fucking dumb.
0: I was like, assuming we'd touch upon this.
1: <laughs> well, guess, look, we get, we're going all over the place, like world well, computer, I kind of got it. Sure. And I still think in some ways it kind of is. Kind
0: of it, it's a very slow, very expensive computer, but it is kind of a decentralized world computer. Yeah, That um, was actually the narrative that hooked me.
1: Um, I mean, e- ETH is money to find money. Like, I mean, I, I had the conversation with Peter Schiff, and I said, in prison, cigarettes are money. Like,
0: And he said, yeah, money. because you could smoke them.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's funny you did say that. Um, so I'm like, whatever, ETH is money. But this ultrasound money, I think, is so hugely disingenuous.
0: I haven't made up my mind about it. So so just for sake of argument, can we touch upon both sides? So I think that people who kind of scoff at this meme, most Bitcoiners, will do so because Ethereum's monetary policy is loose and has changed many times. And we should talk about that as yeah. well, because I was part of those decisions. Um, and how can money be sound if, you know, a small number, if, if a cabal, so to speak, you know, kind of like can change it at, at will? I don't think it's, it's exactly that simple, but right on the one hand. On the other hand, um, Ethereum has begun to reduce its issuance, and issuance will continue to reduce, and in fact, reach a point where it's net deflationary, right? So so more coins are being burnt than are being created. Um, so if if your definition of sound money is that it's, you know, is that the issuance is predictable and well-known, like I think like, is a Bitcoin, that it's sort of, Bitcoin is like slowly approaching deflationary, or that it's, you know, basically that issuance is, is deflationary, then Ethereum kind of is sound money, right? If but, you believe that.
1: But what if it changes again? How many times is the main, like so I could think of at least three, four-ish. Four-ish.
0: Yeah. Uh, but now it's more complicated because there's two Ethereums, right? There's ETH and there's ETH2. And <laughs>
1: okay. Well, we've got so much to get into. All right. Let's take it back a step. Yeah. Let's take it back because we, we, we're going on tangents here. Okay. Why why did it fail?
0: What why was, did Ethereum it, governance no, fail? Yeah, let's I go into basically, that. Basically, yeah. the,
1: the, the juice of this. What sure, was going sure. wrong? What was the stuff you like, this is fucked up. Sure.
0: Yeah, let me explain what I meant by that. So. The sort of things that need to be decided as part of Ethereum governance, like, yes, there's technical things, for sure. There's questions about the protocol. There's low-level questions. Um, Those things I think Ethereum's done a good job of. Um, However, increasingly, as the kind of stakes grow, right, as more things, more institutions, financial tools, primitives, whatever, are built on Ethereum, um, there are increasingly non-technical things that need to be decided. So these are things involving... Ethics. These are things involving economics. And the most obvious example here is economics. That's not a technical question. It's an economic question. Okay. E- right? Economics, monetary policy. Monetary policy right. is one of them. It's not the only thing. Um, what do
1: you mean about,
0: you said, ethics? Ethical questions. So that's, for example, funds recovery. Okay. Right. So this was, this was around that time. I said that was late 2018, yeah. early 2019. Right. So this, this was also one of the things that led me to say that. Uh, that was probably the hottest issue at that time. And here's another one. Mining. Okay. So at that time, there was a proposal to switch from ETH hash Which is the hash function that's used for Ethereum mining to a new function called ProgPow, Programmatic Proof of Work, in order to make Ethereum more ASIC resistant. Okay, and there was a particular line in the Ethereum white paper. The Ethereum white paper is not like the Bitcoin white paper. Okay, Bitcoin white paper is like a fixed thing, right? Seven pages.
1: pages. Is it seven? I thought it was nine. Maybe it's nine. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm pretty showing off my ignorance here. Well, my brother's just getting into Bitcoin, right, and works very closely with me, and he said he keeps coming. He keeps saying. I cannot believe there is a money that might become the base money for the world, and it's defined in nine pages. It's fucking mind blowing. Yeah. Like genuinely. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, that's a foundational document for. Yeah. This this quickly gets into like religion and know, know, how religion I is presented, But let's let's table that. Yeah. You've had that conversation. I have too. Um, the Ethereum white paper is a markdown document. Actually, this is, this is amazing. I've never thought about it in these terms before. But this literally, this is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum in a nutshell, right? The Bitcoin white paper itself is immutable, like mm-hmm. the Genesis block. The Ethereum white paper is a markdown document on a wiki on GitHub.
1: So it can change.
0: So it can change. It has changed. You can see the edit history, right? Um, and there was a line, which I think was actually removed, I think, right, that referred to Ethereum being sort of mineable on GPUs, the idea here being that anyone who owns a GPU can participate in mining at home. That was the original idea, and it was true in the beginning, Um, and and ASIC resistant, okay? And so then this whole debate arose in late 2018, early 2019, and to some extent is still going on, about whether or not the, like, basically evidence emerged at that time that there were Ethereum ASICs for the first time, okay? Rumors, and I think it's, we know that they exist. So so there's a technical piece to this question, but really what it comes down to is economics and ethics. You you had asked like, what do I mean by ethics? Ethical questions. Well, the question is like, um, who deserves, who can mine, who Who deserves to earn the mining rewards? Is it large Chinese mining firms who have access to this hardware? Is it people mining from home? Is it, you know, existing miners with, with GPU farms, things like that, right? And the point is, Ethereum is kind of a technocracy. Right in the sense that there's a relatively small group of technical core contributors, core developers, who get on this call, I described the fortnightly call, it's called the all core devs call, and sort of make these decisions in a, in a, in a fashion called rough consensus. So this is another topic which is very interesting. But long story short, there's two issues with this. The first is that technical contributors, um, first of all, don't have the expertise to weigh in on these things. We don't have training in economics. and and we're making monetary policy decisions. We don't have training in conflict resolution and ethics and philosophy in in sort of these questions, right? Um, That's the first issue. And the second issue is that a lot of the technical core contributors are very sort of reluctant to weigh in on these things, maybe because they don't feel they have the expertise, but also because it opens them up to potential liability, right? Hypothetically, if if Mm -hmm. this group were to make a decision to change the mining algorithm, you could have existing miners come after you and sue you. Um, there are like legal scholars who have suggested that maybe the core developers have some sort of fiduciary responsibility. Actually, this gets back to what you were saying before about all holders of Ether are, are, are by some interpretation, kind of like stakeholders in the network. And there's just, there's just no um, body of law around this right now.
1: How many people on the call? What's the number of these people?
0: So all of my information uh, is a bit out of date, right? Because I stopped contributing a couple of years ago. But yeah, I mean, it w- it would range anywhere between... Seven, eight people, up to kind of thirty-ish people. And how do you get elected to be one of those you people? There's no elections. It's all this is tyranny of structurelessness. It's but, but but but
1: what stops me randomly joining
0: the call? We have had people randomly join the call. Pretty funny episodes, actually. Uh, well, I mean, the short answer is you wouldn't know where to find the link. Okay. It's sort of quasi-public. It, it is in a public channel if you know where to look for it. Um, you again, it's a gray area. It's very much a gray area. But basically, if you are if you have commit access, right? If you are a core developer to um, commit access to one of the Ethereum full node implementations. But again, asterisk, this is also not super well defined because there's a lot of them that are not like mainnet viable, right? That are not sort of mature or feature complete, et cetera. And some of those developers join the calls as well. But basically, if you're kind of known socially to be a constructive contributor technically to the project, right? And again, this is on the order of like maybe 50 people total. They're not all always on the calls.
1: And correct, me if, correct me if I'm wrong, The way this is solved in Bitcoin is everything is done through a bip. Everything in Ethereum is done through an eip. EIP. But it feels like to me everything's done through an eip. But there are board meetings. These sound like board meetings. Sort of. Yes. I don't Um, believe. Are there not? I guess there are not. I don't believe there's a. No. For Bitcoin, I mean, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't know. You know, I should probably get uh, someone like. I mean, I don't know who works Does Jonas Chanelli Is that his name? Maybe he gets involved, or Brian, or I should speak to somebody's
0: a... Matt Carallo, one of these guys. Yeah, who's yeah. a Bitcoin
1: core developer, and yeah, exactly. I, I should learn exactly how that works. So, I
0: my understanding there. is that there, so there's Bips, of course. Yeah. There's the main coordination mechanism for Bitcoin is the Bitcoin dev mailing list. Yeah, it's kind of a very old school, old fashioned way of doing things. That's how like Linux got built and yeah. still gets built, right? Yeah, for but no, no question. Like Ethereum,
1: it's it's more like a board meeting. Who's, yeah. So who sets? So, someone must control the link that goes out.
0: Yeah. So, that's what I was doing.
1: Okay. And so, that is a decision that comes from the Ethereum Foundation. That someone has a... But the Ethereum... (laughs) It's under the governance of the Ethereum Foundation to run this meeting.
0: Kind of. It's very messy. It's very gray area. So, there have been a lineage of people who have done this. Hudson Jameson. I don't know if you've ever crossed paths with Hudson. I
1: have, actually. um, Good guy. I I sent him a private message once to see how he is. Good guy. Yeah. I'd
0: I'd love to arrange that, actually. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, He may be in town this week. We we can make that happen. Uh, Genuinely, good guy. I just want to know if he's okay. Yeah, I think he's okay. I hope he's okay. Um, So he sort of single-handedly ran this process. I think he was the second person ever to do this. So let me think, I got involved in 2017. Hudson probably started doing this around 2016. Um, I sort of started helping Hudson out because he was doing this by himself. And by the way, you know, I think, this is a position of enormous responsibility, enormous stress. You're sort of the face of the company, not the company, sorry. Why am I saying company? The face of the project and the governance of the project to the world, so to speak, like on channels like Twitter and Medium. Um, Like Hudson was the person who was responsible for announcing when there had been like bugs discovered, that kind of thing, right? And so he was on the front lines, so to speak. And so I was kind of backing him up a little bit in that role. And I helped him run a number of these calls.
1: Do you think this led to what we were just nodding at each other about?
0: I think was probably a factor. I mean, that's a huge burden for anybody to yeah. deal with.
1: Yeah. So how is the agenda set for these calls? Does everyone bring their own item? So um, the
0: coordinator, which is Hudson, and this is also partially what I did, opens an issue on... It's basically done in GitHub, right? Opens an issue on GitHub um, a few days or you know, a week or two before the next call and puts out a draft agenda. And then other folks members of of all core devs are invited to come in and propose additions or modifications to the agenda. But really, at the end of the day, it is that one person's responsibility to act as coordinator or moderator and set the agenda for the calls. Now, this again, this is a position of enormous power and responsibility, because if something doesn't make it onto the agenda, then it's not going to be accepted as an EIP, and it's not ultimately going to make it into the protocol. So it is a very important um, seat to be in.
1: And these are all Ethereum core contributors?
0: Yes, for Ethereum one. Now again, there's now an Ethereum two, and that has a different mechanism. So okay, we'll come, we'll come yes. to that. We'll come but to basically, that. yes, Ethereum all sort of production Ethereum today. Yes.
1: Does Vitalik join those calls? From
0: time to time, but um, when I was doing this, and I think up to and including the present, um, very rarely. Like he'll come and kind of join and weigh in on specific things, but he's been much more hands on with ETH two than with ETH one.
1: Next up, I talked to Lane more about the Ethereum Foundation, but before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors, and today I'm going to kick off with sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming, because they accept Bitcoin. I'm hopefully going to be catching up with the team soon. It's been a little while, but with the football season on, with Liverpool crushing it, it really is time to get down and see them. Have a chat about what's coming up for them over the next year. Now, sportsbet.io has you covered for every sport. They've got football, they've got tennis, they've got motorsports, they've got US sports, and they've even got esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, as many long term listeners know, I'm always ragging on about UX, how it's super important to me, how good UX makes Bitcoin easier for new people coming in. So when Exodus reached out and they said they want to sponsor the podcast, I was like, cool, let me play with the app, and I did, and they crushed it. And this is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and family. Now, Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with a mobile wallet, you can send a receipt safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Exodus.com, which is E-X-O-D-U-S.com, or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And this week, we're going to finish off with CASA, which is the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks. There are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with CASA, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a CASA multi-sig wallet, you take custody of your Bitcoin but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets and you get to distribute these wallets into different locations. This is going to protect you and your Bitcoin from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to ask me any questions, I've been a customer for about a year. You can hit me up on my DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S. C-A-S-A. dot C-A-S-S-A. Let me give you a a real world comparison of this what you've explained to me, and you can correct me if i if my comparison's bad but and this is where I see flaws I used to run I told we talked about my digital yeah. agency I said digital agency we built websites, we did social media campaigns we did search engine optimization we did email marketing everything a digital web agency did um, our company has no business without developers we had Probably fifteen developers, some PHP, some .NET. Sure. And then we have layers of uh, 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 project managers, user experience designers, sure. designers, account handlers, etc. I'm the CEO. I have a business partner. I operate sales and planning. Yeah. Uh, my business partner Ollie, did the operations. Um, we had a board or uh, with another guy uh, Tim on it, and um, we moved. I think Debbie and Vic into the team. Um, a comparison would be that that company, the board meetings that we used to have every two weeks, would be run by the devs. And only the devs. And only the devs. With anyone choosing to turn up if they want to. They didn't have to, but some did, some didn't.
0: And there's no formal quorum, by yeah, the way. Yeah. So there were, I could give you at least one or two examples of calls where significant decisions were made with only five or six people on the call.
1: Yeah, and they make making decisions in terms of... Um, What's the pay structure?
0: Right, yeah. exactly. Well, how are, we gonna no, is, how, are we going to issue stocks? How they many go. stocks are we going to issue? Yeah. Who's going to get them? Things like that, right? And, and,
1: and the thing, interesting thing is, like, these developers are some of the smartest people I've ever met. Definitely. They, they absolutely crushed it for me for years. I, I love them all. We built a great company. But they didn't have the skills to run a company. Right. They had the skills to develop. Right. I don't have the skills to develop. I had the skills to run a company. Everyone knew what they right. were good at, right. what they were uh, And we had a structure because a structure works. Ultimate decision maker but I would always run everything by my business partner. But like, if we didn't agree, I was ultimate decision. Right Below that, we had a board where we tried to decide things together. And then people managed their clients and projects. The structure worked because we had structure. And even
0: more to the point, you had accountability. Accountability. Which is to say that if you fucked up, your ass was on the line, yeah. and your board could fire you. I mean, that's the way companies work, and there's a reason for that. They couldn't fire me. <laughs> in, in you get what scenario, I'm saying. The but point is, the, there, there is formal accountability structures yeah. in place.
1: We're a small, we're a small sure. private company of 40 people. What you're referring to, a public company? Yes, you can be fired. Right. I'm pretty sure if there is a scenario where perhaps Michael Saylor could get fired for MicroStrategy. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. It's a publicly created uh, company. I yeah. mean, I'm sure that's the case. Steve Jobs got fired by Apple. Like, this shit happens. And there was, right. But I had accountability to to my business partners exactly, exactly. and investors.
0: Accountability is like the least sexy thing in the world. It's the most boring thing. You know, I, I went to business school. I had a class in corporate governance. It didn't interest me in the least. And I didn't at all appreciate or understand how important it was until I got into Ethereum and saw what happens when you don't have accountability structures in place.
1: H- humans build structures that work. Not always, but generally speaking. Sure. Okay, so this already sounds to me like a complete shit show. <laughs> It just does. It just sounds like like me as somebody who's run companies, I can look at that and go, that's not going to work. If you're making those decisions, that's not going to work. And that's why when you said earlier about whether Joe Lubin created this as a company, well, if he did? Those decisions wouldn't be made by those people in those rooms. There would be a different structure. Well, I think
0: there'd be more structure. I think the people making the decisions would be qualified to make the decisions. Yeah. I think they'd have their legal liability covered by a company, which, is, again, is a big issue in Ethereum and I think there'd be accountability.
1: So this this is just, to me, this is just a, f- a failure of structure. Okay, therefore, the foundation, I understand why you say it's failed. One thing I'm quite interested in knowing about, the area i always interested in is the monetary policy. Yeah, let's talk about that. It's but, interesting. I'm, but the reason I'm interested in the monetary policy is, one, I wouldn't want something where the monetary policy keeps changing. But look, I'm just... I'm um, also maybe just got roast into glasses because Bitcoin's never changed. i like, oh, well, then that's perfect. You should never have a change in monetary policy. And, you know, we're all against central banks who do have a change in monetary policy. It is decided by five old or 10 old white guys in a room who may be like also changing the monetary policy for things that affects their own pockets. Um, I think we had the other day, it was revealed that the Fed were buying things that Jerome Powell owned. So, like, surprise, so, surprise. Yeah, yeah, surprise, surprise, blah, 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 Um, But the monetary policy, me, the reason that interests me most, I want to know if there are monetary policy decisions that are made which will lead to the value of Ethereum going up directly. And if people, there are people who, who maybe, who are large Ethereum old holders, got to influence those decisions and whether they're making those decisions for themselves rather than Ethereum. Like, for number go up rather than yeah. what Ethereum needs. I mean, I, I, like I'm mean, like i leading you down to a certain sure, place, sure, sure. but I want to know if that kind of shit happens. Yeah, look, I mean, I
0: think... I, I, I touched upon this earlier. There's two ways to look at this, right? The positive way is to say that, like... Uh, and actually, we, we talked about this in Ethereum. Like, should core developers, should people participating in all core devs, like... Paid ETH and have like a like a publicly known something, wallet address something, right? In other words, should there be skin in the game, right? That's the positive side. Like we shouldn't be making these decisions arbitrarily. Um like what I'm saying is we should be facing the down downside consequences as well as the upside, right? Mm-hmm. We should know that if we fuck up, this is sort of a form of accountability, like our own kind of bags are on the line. Uh that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that there's a massive conflict of interest, which I understand is kind of like what yeah. you're getting at. Um and actually, this is this was one of my issues in Ethereum, was that there was no um, disclosure of conflict of conflicts of interest. And they're rife. I mean, they're they're everywhere in, in the space in the Ethereum Foundation, among the core developers, et cetera. Um, a couple people did. I think actually Vitalik was one of them. He kind of went out and said, look, these are this is my you know public Ethereum wallet address. These are the other pro- I'm an advisor for these projects, I hold these coins, these tokens, et cetera. Like I think that again, this is a thing. This is a normal thing in real world governance, right? Like we should, and we were obviously not doing as good a job as we could be in, mm-hmm. you know, the United States governments for government, for example, but basically conflict of interest, interest disclosure is like a standard thing. Like that's just a, a starting point. We should have that now to your question. Um, what I can tell you is the process by which these changes are made yes. and, and kind of who participates in them. I can't tell you how much ETH they hold, right? I don't know yeah. that. Um, so Ethereum monetary policy, like, I I believe originally it was like five ETH per block. Yeah. Something like that. And um, the network launched in 2015. And you could, you know, do the math back of the envelope, but like, you know, there's some thousands of blocks per day as opposed to Bitcoin where there's like 188 blocks per day, whatever the number is, because Ethereum blocks come out, you know, much more often. Um, The original vision was that in relatively short order on the order of like i don't know, two years three years something like that ethereum would transition from proof of work to proof of stake um and proof of stake like i actually really dislike proof of stake that's another rabbit hole we could go down if we have time we could save it for another episode but um, i think we're
1: going to end up doing yeah, another one at some point it's all good yeah
0: um but so proponents of proof of stake like it for a couple reasons one is that it's it's greener than proof of work you're not burning the sort of CPU ASIC cycles, right? Uh, another reason is that it allows you to pay less for security in theory, right? So the sort of block rewards can be a lot less. So the idea was that um, Ethereum issuance would start quite high, you know, some hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ETH were being issued per year, but that like it would drop drastically with the transition to proof of stake.
1: There's no halving. No,
0: there's nothing baked into the protocol. Right. Okay, but we're getting back. Okay, because it it's did... not automatic. It's because manual.
1: I, the first monetary policy change I remember was halving the... Not exactly.
0: I think it was 5 to 3 Was it 5 block. to 3? Right. I, I might be but I remember up, but Roughly. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. That was 2018? That was...
0: I think that was, was that Byzantium. Seven? I think that was 2017. Really? I think... Okay. Okay. Again, I, I may be off by one here, but this was... I, I was joining the project around this time. Okay? okay. So, I think that was like 5 to 3 ETH, something like that. Maybe 3.5. Um, that was a decision made by the core devs on the core devs call. Now, I participated in the next reduction, which was, again, I don't remember. It was like three to two, I think, ETH per block, something like that. And there was a very specific reason this decision was made. And this gets a little bit into the guts of Ethereum, both technically as well as the monetary policy. They're kind of interconnected.
1: Changing the issuance benefits every holder.
0: Reducing the issuance benefits every holder. Yeah. Sure. Other things being equal. Yes. So Ethereum has this, Coordination mechanism called the difficulty bomb.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like the the US debt ceiling.
0: It's actually a similar mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah it's uh it's a very it's,
0: smart mechanism, actually. I like it a lot. Yeah.
1: Which um which uh, is not fixed. when well, it should be. The debt ceiling is is an argument in Congress.
0: And we're about again. to run into it again. You yeah, know? and they get yeah.
1: another argument. They're going to probably shut down. The last time services. the last
0: time the government was shut down here was, I believe, the what was the end of 2019. I couldn't get my passport renewed. I was oh, wow. fucked. It was really bad. So yeah. it actually like I, I was like we were like oh the the federal government is far away. Who cares? Like it actually impacted me. Yeah, and
1: I assume what happens is there's some like uh, horse trading backdoor to get the debt ceiling raised. Sure. And the difficulty bomb. My understanding was like it was fixed. Oh, it but then remo-
0: it was- here's the thing. It removes inaction as an as a as a. As an option for yeah. governance, right, there must be at the very least a coordinated protocol upgrade uh every eighteen months plus or minus right it's I, I, again it, it's it's changed over the years, but when I was involved, it was kind of like it would start to tick up at something like the like 13, 14 month mark and by about the eighteen month mark it's exponential right so mm-hmm. the blocks would slow would slow exponentially and you get to a point where blocks are coming every thirty seconds every sixty seconds, and then the network would kind of like halt slowly right mm-hmm. so uh, fascinating mechanism like really really interesting it was originally put in way back in the day to ensure the transition to proof of stake because the idea was that there would be opposition among the proof of work miners who wouldn't want to support uh proof of stake right because they would lose out basically mm-hmm. like their capital investment would would be worthless or yeah. worth a lot less right and so Again, a very very smart mechanism was put in, but the thing is, the transition to proof of stake and ETH two uh, has taken so much longer than expected that the difficulty bomb has been pushed back at least three times. I think mm-hmm. maybe maybe four times by now. Now here's the thing. If you this is where things begin to get very interesting and also very complicated. If you look at Ethereum monetary policy as of inception, as of the genesis block, yep. right, you have to factor in the difficulty bomb, right, which is to say that the first time it kicked in, which would have been I don't know 2017, something like that, right. Um, issuance kind of would have halted at that point in time. And the idea was that there should have been a proof of stake chain running by then, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't. And so every time we push back the difficulty bomb, we increase the issuance increase, not decrease. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which means diluting everyone's holdings significantly, actually quite a bit. Um, I mean, if if you're, if, if the network is three years old and you're adding 18 months, like what is that? That's a plus 50% issuance. That's a huge increase. Um, in inflation and so as a result to counteract that at least partially the per block subsidy was reduced so that's the context of how these decisions were made yeah okay
1: it's kind of a halving
0: but it's not because as i said like it's 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 supposed to be like net neutral kind of yeah and again i think a lot of this nuance is lost when you hear people talk about the sound the ultrasound money meme anyway yeah so there's like you know 10 12 people who made these decisions i was running python scripts i was one of these people you know, um, I think Vitalik probably chimed in a couple of other folks did, but none of us are trained economists, none of us. And at least in the decisions that I was a part of, like, not only did we not get input from economists, like it it was, we should, I should dig up some of these like, like Twitter threads or medium articles. It was kind of like, you know, put your finger in the air, like judge which way the wind is going. And it's okay. We're going to reduce it from five to three. Like, Why not? That sounds like a reasonable number. We don't know what the right <laughs> amount to pay for issuance is. We don't genuinely. The best thing we can do is like look at what Bitcoin's doing, look at what other networks are doing. Okay, Ethereum Classic was attacked; it's not paying enough. We need to pay more. You know. Okay. Now, okay. in defense, like this is all new. Like there is not like I've actually had conversations with friends who are macroeconomists about this, and they're like, "We don't fucking know." Like <laughs> blockchains. Like <laughs> macroeconomics as a field is only a few decades old. Like they have no idea. So, um, that's the answer to your question. It's core devs primarily. Okay. I, I, I certainly don't think it's the case that like um, some whale is necessarily like...
1: Influencing the decision. No,
0: influencing they are, for sure. Oh, they are. And, and I've had, by the way, I've also had like pseudonymous whales reach out to me both in person and online and kind of nudge me one way or the other. So like there's people talk about like... A sh-
1: what's, a, what you, what's a nudge? Hey, I think you should make this decision. Or hey, I'll give you this if you make this decision. Both. Oh, okay. So there there are both. people offering incentives.
0: Yeah, I've never been like threatened or anything like that, but I did have kind of like... Shady figures approach me at parties and dark rooms and say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm this person. I was, you know, influential in the network previously. I'm a big Ethereum bag holder. Um,
1: So there are people out there offering bribes.
0: I don't think I was ever actually offered an explicit bribe. Well, Well, I was sort of like sent funds to do things. Like, here's, <laughs> like, I want yeah. you to spin up a voting website to vote for ProgPow, which was this possible change in the mining algorithm, like I said before, here's, you know, a thousand bucks to do it, something like that, right? We're not okay. talking about huge okay. sums of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. I, I never was given explicit bribes, but what I was, it, it, it's kind of like influence peddling, I don't know the exact word for this, maybe that's not the right word for it, because that would be me selling influence. It was people cozying up to me and saying, hey, let's have a beer, let's chat. Yeah, but lobbying suggests it's formalized. It's very informal kind of, right? So so there there are a lot of- I'm
1: sure there's a lot of informal lobbying. There's
0: a lot of strings being pulled. And I heard pretty wild stories about some of these known and unknown bag holders who did have much more direct influence over other participants in these conversations. Okay. Well, well, like, for example, like, I mean, look, you know, no, core, core devs who are very active in these conversations who had, um, you know, some ETH pre-sale participant billionaire, like, basically paying them a salary, like, that probably counts as a form of influence,
1: right? Yeah, but you, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think what people would say about Bitcoin. they say, well, look, there are core devs who get paid by Bitcoin. Sure, I'm not sure there's any difference. I'm not yeah. suggesting that, yeah. like, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting anything like,
0: terribly underhanded is going on. What I am suggesting is that we're not revealing conflicts of interest, and we should be doing that. We should have way more transparency than we have.
1: Be- because we pretty much know who every Bitcoin Core dev is funded, but like, gets announced, like, I don't know, Coinbase are sponsoring these two people, uh, Human Rights Gem- Foundation. Yeah, human Rights are doing these projects, sure. Gemini's doing them. Sure. It's pretty out there. Sure.
0: This is not really the case in Ethereum. There's, there's okay. little to no transparency around who these folks are in the first place or like, how, you know, how they're funded, basically.
1: Hmm. Where's what's, what's Joe Lubin's role in all this? He's the guy. So look, I, I'm not asking for any kind of accusations, or but he's the guy I'm interested in because it it feels like it's his project. Joe, it feels like v- Vitalik is the tech director, and he's he's the CEO. That's what it feels like to me.
0: Yeah. So what I know is that um, he was involved not from the very, very, very beginning, but shortly thereafter. Um, which is to say kind of like post white paper, pre mm-hmm. pre Genesis, um, he invested, he, he was personally paying, I think probably for a lot of the expenses for the team during the initial process. Uh, you know, cause folks like, like Gavin Wood and, and Vitalik, you know, probably didn't much bring much to the team economically. Uh, he had a lot of Bitcoin as well. He probably had a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah. He had, you know, he had a background working in finance, et cetera. Um, yeah, and, and he probably almost definitely invested very heavily into the pre-sale, right? So he's mm-hmm. definitely a large Ethereum holder. We know that he like, I, I mean, I shouldn't say we know. Uh, my understanding, based on secondhand information, is that like he kind of single-handedly funded Consensus' operations for the first few years and yeah. Consensus built some pretty cool shit. So like, that's probably good for the network. Um, built some cool shit for Saudi government. Is that true? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, there was some partnership. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, consensus got really big, really quick and was was doing a lot of things in a lot of places. Yeah. I'm not super surprised.
1: And then it went out to raise a lot of money at one point.
0: Yeah. And I heard there was a big investment recently by JP Morgan or something. I don't know the details yeah. about that stuff. Interesting. Uh, yeah, look, I think Joe's an interesting figure. I think consensus is an interesting organization. I think from a governance perspective, it's interesting because it is a second poll in influence to, to the Ethereum Foundation, right? So mm. At, when I was active, 2018, 2019, if you were building something, especially at the level one, the layer one, and you wanted like funding or support, you really had two choices. You either go to Vitalik or you go to Joe. Uncle Joe.
1: Uncle Joe? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds creepy.
0: I think it's a bit different now, right? There's there's more money and there's more like protocols okay. and projects and like DeFi, for example, like people yeah. have deep, deep pockets. So you could, there are probably other sources of influence and funding. But yeah, look, I mean, he has been very influential for a long time in the project. He's you know pretty open about that. Um, I don't know is consensus mining. Is he personally mining? Maybe, probably.
1: But you, you said like you used to work in hedge funds. You were like yeah. helping, <laughs> you were helping rich people get rich, yeah. and you kind of felt you were doing yeah. the same at Ethereum. Yeah. Like, where's, yeah. where specifically do you mean? Well, this goes back to the,
0: the, the pre-sale and the, the, the pre-mine. Okay. Right. The so that fact changed that everything. Seventy percent of the ether, you know, at that point in time and the value of the network was in the hands of a small number of people. Joe was probably the largest.
1: Holder. So do you believe Ethereum, the Ethereum Foundation is run for the benefit of those people? Of the of whom? Of the The decision making of for Ethereum. Do you think it's run for the users of Ethereum? I think, the benefit? Or do you think it's run for the benefit of those people?
0: I think the Ethereum Foundation is run at the whim of Vitalik Putaran.
1: Okay, still.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, as of two years ago, I have no idea what's happened since then. Um, I think the governance of the Foundation itself is structured in such a way there's a certain number of like board seats. I think Vitalik has multiple votes. Um, there's little to no transparency, little to no accountability. Uh, thank goodness Vitalik is not a bad actor, yeah. right? I think he's a good, he's a decent human being and has the best interests of the network at, at heart. However, it's hypocrisy. And this is, this is yeah. I said that sort of pre-mine was the biggest reason I left Ethereum. Yeah. I think the second biggest reason is hypocrisy. This is an important point to make. Ethereum, to the extent that there is like a, a sort of publicly stated mission, it's as I was alluding to before, it's about like building better human institutions that are more participatory, fair, more transparent, et cetera. And yet Ethereum governance itself and specifically the Ethereum Foundation is none of those things, right? It's, there's no transparency. There's no accountability whatsoever, period.
1: How does that get fixed then? Like, I mean, sounds like to me it should just be disbanded.
0: I I want to make one important point, which is that, again, we have to be careful about not conflating Ethereum and the Ethereum Foundation, right? I think that in the beginning, it was certainly the case. Like, if you had taken away the Ethereum Foundation in 2015, 2016, Ethereum would have died or never been created.
1: That's not the case. That's not
0: the case anymore today. I would have said that, like I would have hesitated to say that a couple years ago. I think it's pretty clear at this point, Ethereum is too big to fail. And if you were to take away the Ethereum Foundation or consensus for that matter, the network would be just fine today, right? Um, And so Ethereum has succeeded in spite of the dysfunction of the Ethereum Foundation, not because of it being a glorious success.
1: But would you disband the foundation? Do you think it just, it sounds to me it's just a toxic, disorganized mess. If you disbanded it, you could replace it with something better
0: i think we have to be careful how we define you
1: well i'm asking the, you your the, opinion i'm saying what is your opinion is some like you've put yourself out there saying it's failed okay so what should be done
0: yeah when i said it failed i was referring to ethereum governance not to the foundation specifically and i
1: but isn't isn't foundation of the, the fail of governance within the foundation a failure of the foundation
0: Yes, but again, I was not referring to the foundation. I was referring to the protocol. Two different things. Again, it's really important to not conflate these two in our minds, right?
1: Governance of the protocol.
0: So the Ethereum Foundation bootstrapped Ethereum protocol governance. Okay. So like Hudson Hudson Jameson, the gentleman I mentioned before, right? He like me was a contractor for the foundation. Foundation paid for the Zoom account that was used to host these calls. They're posted in the foundation YouTube, et cetera. Now I actually think that that should have a long time ago should have been moved off of foundation properties onto, I don't know what, that's the question, something that's controlled by the community, right?
1: Right. So So the
0: Ethereum Ethereum Foundation has been very active in governance. To give you a very concrete example, when the DAO hard fork happened, when the decision was made in 2016 to do that, there were maybe 10 people on that conversation, eight or nine of whom had an affiliation with the Ethereum Foundation.
1: Fine. So do you think Ethereum governance should be taken out of the Ethereum Foundation and re Yes,
0: yes, yes. That I can confidently say yes. And there should be, this is kind of what I was trying to do in 2019 was to create a new thing, call it a foundation, maybe an association, some kind of structure. Maybe, I mean, really, it's a DAO at the end of the day that had the transparency, had the accountability to the community, had those structures in place. And that did not happen.
1: So if you take the governance of Ethereum out of the Ethereum Foundation, the the Ethereum Foundation can focus on education. Giving grants. That's kind of like what it does. Education, advocacy, supporting... Different right. projects, but you remove the conflict of interest that exists between the foundation, the people who run the foundation, and the governance and the people who control the governance of Ethereum. That se- that seems to me like a huge conflict of interest.
0: Where's the conflict of interest? Well, it's I, because they they hold a lot of ETH. Is that because why? they hold a
1: lead? And and we don't know the different influence levels that happen at different in different places. Who's sponsored by who? It sounds to me like ethereum governance should be set completely separated and rethought here's the thing right the this is
0: kind of like a circular dilemma okay because if you say take governance away from the foundation fine i'm on board with that i Mm -hmm. I don't love the foundation whose hands are you going to put it in okay you need a new foundation or call it a or something okay so number one what is like how do we ensure that the same failures of governance don't happen to the new foundation, if we're going to call it a foundation, right? And I have some ideas I've I've explained, like increased accountability, transparency, etc. There are ways we can do that. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the foundation was created in the first place to do this.
1: Yeah, fine. But like, bootstrapped, you've evolved beyond that point. It sounds like it's not required anymore. I mean, I would be saying, look, Bitcoin governance is successful. It is a success. So why not emulate that model?
0: I think the best projects that I've seen have and very few have actually followed through on this, but many intend to, they all say they want to do this, right? Is that they have something, a company or foundation or both that like bootstraps, it's a good word, right? Kind of bootstraps or stewards this thing into existence and then decentralizes itself and disappears, which is again, kind of what Shapeshift and Eric's team are trying to do right now. I think that's a great idea. Um, I've heard um, several folks say that, I wasn't of course in the room at the time, but that the original goal of the Ethereum Foundation was exactly this, was to liquidate itself and, and disappear. After the protocol was like functioning and healthy. Um, I just, this is, this is, this is the thing. This is the thing that happens. Okay. This is exactly what we as a community are trying to fight back against is that anytime you have a centralization of power and wealth and influence in the hands of a small number of people, this is true of the Ethereum foundation. It's true of every, you know, kind of big company or foundation that ever existed. Even if the people who kind of created it go into it with the best of intentions and say to themselves, we're going to remove ourselves. You know, we have no ego in this, et etc. Inevitably, the thing just, just, just gets to a place where it just procreates. It just, it just refuses to die, and and it, it's just so hard to do that. It's so, it's, it's so easy to delude yourself, either as an individual or as an, as an organization, into thinking just a few more years. You know, we're, we're giving grants. We're doing. We're educating people. We're doing good things, right? To to believe that yourself, even if that's not true objectively, right? And so, I, I guess what I'm getting at is here. This goes back to the hypocrisy I touched upon before. If the Ethereum Foundation were very serious about this, how do you solve this? It's fucking simple, okay? Create a smart contract, transfer all your ETH into it, and set a ticking timer on it. And say, this smart contract is going to vanish and take all the funds with it in one year or two years' time or whatever that is. They could have done this in the beginning. This is what's called a credible commitment, okay? And this is exactly the superpower of Ethereum and of blockchains, is that you can create a credible commitment. It's visible, it's transparent. The whole world can see it. And this is like... um, Doctor Strangelove, you know that that movie way back about the Russia-U.S. like Mm -hmm. uh, nuclear holocaust, and like you know the Russians were like, "Look, we have our our nuclear missiles armed and loaded, and they are uh, targeting U.S. cities, and like if we don't intervene, then they're just like it's just going to trigger, it's just going to happen, right? So like it's it's what's called a credible commitment, right? Um, They could have done that. They could still do that. They haven't done that. Why? Because they're hypocrites in my mind. Does that make sense? And, and it was this hypocrisy no, that does. kept me up at night and I was like, I don't want to support this. I don't want to be a part of this.
1: Hmm. Because, yeah,
0: I get it. So yes, so but we I should we should have, slash still should, create something new that has the accountability and transparency and, and transfer gradually or suddenly, I don't know, right, the power and influence to something, to a better mechanism.
1: But it, I imagine there's only one person who could make that happen, which is Vitalik.
0: No, I don't think that's true anymore. I mean... What? Look, I got very close to like forking Ethereum in 2019 and making this happen, uh, and there were a lot of people in the community who thought it was a good idea at the time. Because I don't know if the, we have the option of forking, is what I'm saying, right? So, so any subset of the community could do this. Uh, it didn't happen, and I, I think it's good that it didn't happen. But
1: you become Ethereum Cash. It's just, it's just uh, maybe. I mean, just, one of them it's does. Just too much. Yeah, it's just. I, I don't think that's the right idea. I, I probably not. But I wholly, not. I wholly understand where you're coming from now from the hypocrisy level. That kind of makes sense. Yeah,
0: I I think the right thing to do is probably not a fork. It's probably not attacking. It's kind of like live and let live, right? Let the Ethereum Foundation do its thing. It can be as functional or dysfunctional as it wants to be. We're going to be the better people. We're going to go over here and we're going to build something better, right? But then the question becomes, how do you fund it? And that's where things get very tricky, this question of like public goods funding.
1: So is there any particular shady shit that went on that also that we should be aware of?
0: This is a good question. Um, I think there was a lot of naivete, um, and to give a concrete example of this, um, I was part of a team, right? Mm -hmm. Called the Iwasm team. And we were like 10 people and, um, you know, we, uh, were not sort of treated super well or paid very well, but, you know, we're also given like freedom to travel and things like that. So, you know, it was a kind of a mixed bag. Um, and, the Ethereum foundation around this time in late 2017, early 2018, 2018, I think, started giving grants to third parties, Mm -hmm. projects, things like that. And these grants were um, in some cases, you know, five figures, some cases, six figures. I think some of them went up to seven figures. And we started seeing this grant money leave the foundation, to be clear, coming from the same multi-sig, like the same source of funds as as we were getting paid our salaries or fees, I guess, technically for the work we were doing. And there was no explanation, like no transparency into how those decisions were made. And in one particular case, which I remember, you know, there was this announcement that the Ethereum Foundation would publish these blog posts where they would announce the recipients of the latest round of grants. And you kind of click on it and you land on the landing page of one of these projects. And the very first thing you see, like, I think it was even like above the fold was like angel investor, Vitalik Buterin, you know, things like this. So, you know, again, this is, what is it? It's lack of professionalism. It's lack of... Kind of disclosure of conflicts of interest uh, i but uh, that's kind of you know, seeing like millions of dollars of grant money flow to you know projects that that uh directors or stakeholders in the Ethereum foundation had personally invested in prior to that uh friends of vitalik and kind of you know friends of other kind of core stakeholders um, I don't know how these decisions were made, and I'm not necessarily suggesting it's definitely like nepotism or insider dealing. But what I'm suggesting is without transparency, without disclosing conflict of interest, we don't know. Yeah. Right. There was a lot of this kind of stuff that happened. And that's bad enough on the face of it. It's worse because simultaneously, we felt shit on as contractors who were getting, you know, we, there were PhDs, experts in their field who were getting paid something like 25 US dollars an hour for their work from the Ethereum Foundation. Um, no benefits because we're all contractors. Other people were, I think, probably paid quite well. And I think this had a lot to do with how close you were to the decision makers, how much they like you, stuff like this. No HR. It didn't exist because we're all contractors. You know, no, um, no recourse.
1: Hmm. What are you working on now?
0: You want to talk about it? I thought we were agreed not to talk about it.
1: <laughs> well, I think, yeah, but now I think about it because I have to ask another important question. Yeah. So I don't... It's not that like I care about what you're working yeah, on, yeah, but yeah. I have to ask a different question. So I, I need to know what you're working on now. Okay,
0: yeah. So I, uh, in 2019, thought about kind of forking Ethereum, thought about building a better Ethereum, and um, had a scheme in my mind, like I had sort of a, a vision of a different technical roadmap by kind of things like proof of stake and, and sharding, like core aspects of the Ethereum 2 roadmap I kind of disagree with. I had a vision in my mind of what I would build, and I found this project called Space Mesh, which... To a large extent, overlap with my vision. So this is like a, a, a better Ethereum kind of. So I'm a
1: smart contract platform.
0: Correct, a, a new smart contract platform called Space Mesh. Yeah.
1: So my only question is, the, you know what question I'm going to ask? Are, will people accuse you of being critical of Ethereum to now promote Space Mesh?
0: I mean, I don't. I have a pretty thick skin. I think you do too. I don't sort of care what people accuse me of. Um, I, I think if you kind of go back and, and look at what happened in 2019, and look at kind of the order of operations. Um, you know, this all of this stuff that we're talking about here came long before I learned or got involved in the Space Mesh project, right? Like my, I became very vocal of my criticism of Ethereum kind of early 2019, and joined that project like late 2019.
1: Does Space Mesh have a pre-mine? I have to ask that.
0: <sighs> it's complicated. I mean, 25 Yeah, 25% of the total issuance as of 10 years, 10 years post Genesis. Uh, collectively will go to investors and core team. However, issuance will continue long after that, and it will go down to about 5% over the long term. So also, there's no coins at all issued on... There is no pre-mine, right? So, so there's, issued there's from day one. Nothing is issued on day one. Nothing is issued for the first year. There's okay. a, a long vesting period, and it vests very, very gradually. So the first year... Core team investors get zero. Only the miners have it. And then from that point on, there's graduations. It it goes down towards around 5% long term. This has been an internal war on our team, by the way, because I am trying to fix what Ethereum did. 60%, 70% is like way too high. And also- 5% is pretty fucking good. you got to be honest about that. Yeah,
1: but it sounds to me this is a bit more like a a company structure.
0: It's a company that is going to decentralize itself and turn into a community-led DAO. And make credible commitments along the lines I was talking about a moment ago. Like yeah. if I have a say in this and I do, whatever funds are left in the company as of Genesis or shortly after Genesis are gonna go into something like, like a like a multi-sig with a with a timer on it. Like I said, it's just gonna it's going to vanish. Those funds need to be spent or deployed within some reasonable period of time. That's yeah. like how you do I this. I mean,
1: look, I'm not hugely interested in space manager. Sure. I just I'm more interested in when this is released, the different attack vectors. If people listen to this and they're critical of you, all of the things they might say, that that's naturally one. Um Okay, one other thing because we we've, could we've go for fucking hours. Uh, this is fascinating. Um, well, one last thing. We don't to spend too much time on it. Like, is ETH 2 ever going to happen? Like, yeah, what is question? the problem? Uh, um, yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, I don't track it. I just see Marty Bent's uh, ever-growing Marty. thread. Much love
0: to Marty. Mar- oh, Marty, you God. know, Marty was here in New York and he and I were getting into the space at precisely the same time in 2017. So we crossed paths a few times. A lot of love to Marty. Yeah, a
1: lot of love to Marty. Uh, yeah, a lot of love for his podcast and yeah. his newsletter. But his... His podcast is wild. Yeah. Like, wild. <laughs> but his ongoing email thread regarding these two is kind of funny. Yeah. It's like, I, I've not spent any time looking at it. What's yeah. the issue? Like, are they trying to do something that's just not possible and they're going to break ETH?
0: So it's fascinating. And and we could do two hours in this easily, Oh, sorry.
1: One other question. So when ETH2 launches, will there be ETH1 and ETH2? And everyone who has ETH1 will have ETH2 tokens and is essentially getting a dividend. So actually, that's already true. It is. So ETH2,
0: what's called... So it's it's yeah, it's it's so complicated. The, the the roadmap has multiple phases in it. Okay. There were originally like six phases. And, and, and a phase zero, you know, yeah. programmers with zero index. It's actually like something like on the order of seven phases, right? Um, the first phase, phase zero, actually launched in December. Okay. So it's been running for you know nine, 10 months now.
1: Is that beacon?
0: Correct. That's the beacon chain, right? And so the beacon chain, uh, so the way this works is it is a proof of concept of proof of stake. Mm-hmm. So anyone who holds 32 ETH on ETH1, mainnet can move those 32 ETH into a particular designated contract on the mainnet. And then that enables them to run one validator on the ETH2 beacon chain. Um, And therefore, you have effectively moved your mainnet ETH into people call it BEETH, which is beacon chain ETH. So there are already two ETH and they're not fungible because the funds like... You can trade your beef on a secondary market, but that's sort of like trading futures, which is what you were alluding to before. So it's kind of like like assuming that what's called the merge, with a capital M, right, happens sometime early next year, which is the officially stated plan. um, Eventually, the two will become (laughs) one again. It would happen. You don't think so? I think it will happen. But like, I think the, the thing that has happened is, number one, it's taken way longer than anyone said. Number two, the scope has been reduced dramatically. And so like the original vision, the original vision was that we're gonna have this ETH2 thing running, and it's gonna have like a 1,000 shards, and each shard is gonna look like Ethereum we have now, and the shards are gonna be like um, opaque, which is to say that like you can run an application, it doesn't have to care about which shard it's on or which shard it's talking to, like none of that's gonna be the case. Um, There's now a very small number of shards. And and by the way, this also changes a lot, and I'm also not super up to date on this, so caveat, like do your own homework, please cross check the facts. But my understanding is that there's a small number of shards, each of these shards is, they're not going to be like homogenous. Like they were, they're they not going to each look like ETH1 like they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Each of them is going to have like what's called a different execution environment. So that's something like, like roll-ups. It, again, it gets very complicated very quickly. But I think that the takeaway here is that each of these shards is a separate ecosystem. You can think about them like separate blockchains, right? And this is also already true of the roll-ups that we're seeing in Ethereum, where these are things like Optimism and Arbitrum each of them is a separate ecosystem. So you can kind of like build bridges and move things from like mainnet ETH into one of these roll-up ecosystems or move it to ETH2 or move it a month. But each of them is separate, which means that we lose this like composability. So you can't just... Is this, is this... It's very complicated. Is it
1: solving scaling issues? Is that what it's about?
0: Yes and no. I mean, it solves scaling, but at the cost of you lose this composability. And composability is just like so central to Ethereum. Like the fact that you can build... Uh, these crazy DeFi things on top of these primitives, like like Maker came along and created DAI, which was like the first stablecoin, and other people can build things on top of DAI, and you can have CryptoKitties and then have someone deploy hats to put on top of your CryptoKitties, all permissionlessly, all composably. A lot of that goes away in like an ETH2 world.
1: Right, okay.
0: And so you sort of an unsolvable problem.
1: Should they have just built ETH2 on Oracle?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oracle the company.
1: Yeah, I mean... No, look. I think. I think. I what think, I'm saying is, it like has the concept of what a blockchain can do been taken too far? And
0: I think what a single blockchain can do is very limited. I think that we are seeing the limits in Ethereum today. Um, I think that there's, it's very disingenuous when folks talk about ETH2 as the solution, the the promised land just over the next hill. Like all our scalable scalability problems are going to go away because they're not explaining the downsides and these nuances. I think you also have to look at what projects like Solana are doing. Sorry, I know we're we're going even That's further fine. into Shitcoin territory no, here, but, but- like
1: it, we've been talking about this this week quite a bit yeah. because we've been you surrounded by it. And I'm not going to invest. I'm not going to invest. I'm not going to. I'm not going to start covering this as projects. Right. But from a strictly but, technical perspective, it's very interesting. Or context, just context. Like, what is like I saw seen Solana go up to 220. dollars I'm like, what is this thing? And it's like, it's. It's this continual sacrifice of decentralization. Correct.
0: Exactly. Exactly. To
1: for scale, exactly. for scalability. Exactly. 100%. And I feel like that is a race to building, uh, to, to, to dump in the blockchain and yeah. build something on yeah. a traditional database, yeah. Yeah. but that's permissionless. In some way, and, yeah. and maybe someone's going to paint you a fucking idiot. That doesn't make sense. You well, can't. Yeah, I
0: mean, it can't be permissionless or censorship resistant by definition if it's not decentralized. Like the way that Bitcoin gets these properties that we all know and love yeah. is by being so fucking decentralized. But,
1: but, but from what I've been told about Solana, I, 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 I would argue that it's not really decentralized.
0: It's. I think their gamble is that it's decentralized enough. enough. Yeah. Right. And and I will give them one fact, which is that most people most degens trading nfts and digital rocks don't care as much about decentralization as you and i and the people in el salvador and places like that i
1: don't think they care at all
0: well if they didn't care at all then they shouldn't be on a blockchain in the first place they should be using firebase yeah, I, I just don't think it's
1: an issue either if you care about decentralization then you care about maximum decentralization you're saying that it's it's, when, it's all or nothing when, when, yeah when you when you when you don't care as much about decentralization i think you don't really care about
0: this. It's thing, a slippery right? slope. Yeah. I think we'd agree about this. Yeah, and we're, and we're once you start going stuff. in that direction, you start making compromises, then,
1: no, I, look, I'm with you. The reason I that... Think, I think these people are just having fun. Yeah. Basically, I think it's they're having a fun, they're making money, they're trading rocks, they're trading right. uh, you know, tokens, uh, cup rockets and dog coins, and they're having fun. And I, And from a distance, I'm watching them have fun, and then I'm in this little world here where I'm arguing about the state, and yeah. the Fed, and I'm watching all these people over there have fun. It's like I'm in a business meeting in a Vegas hotel, yeah. Yeah. and I can see yeah. through the glass yeah. windows all the people that they're down there and they're, they're on the roulette wheel and they're drinking having fun, and I'm up there. But but
0: it. so it's, so I'm with you yeah. 100%. I really like this, this characterization. But it's even worse because they're winning and yes. they're making... Hand, money hand over fist, I know. and folks like you and I are here, like trying to do real work and like move the needle for humanity. It's yeah. very hard to focus. But, was, it, but it was also like this in 2017. So I know,
1: and I was I was having fun in 17. But I was saying I was with Travis Kling the other day, and Daddy I was just like saying, I'm my I'm, I'm not rich, but like I am at my wealthiest moment in my life right now, and I feel poor. Yeah, I'm with your I'm like, right. look at all these people making so much money. Yeah. They're buying rock JPEGs for 2.3. Like, they're buying fucking yeah. JPEGs for it, more money it, than I think. It I've really had.
0: shows you yeah. how much wealth there is sloshing uh, around out there.
1: And I'm like, no, we've got to move the world forward. I'm principled in doing this. And also, like, can't do that because all these people are yelling at me. I mean, like, I just, I. Th- uh, the reason I don't want to have the fight anymore because I just they're yeah. two different yeah. things. Yeah. Do, like, why fight these people? It's like fighting to close down. Vegas. They're not the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Just let. They're not. The, they. They aren't the enemy. The enemy is the Fed. The enemy yep. is the yep. pound, yep. the dollar, the euro, the people making those 100%, decisions. Hundred uh, percent. That's that's the enemy. They're not even competing for Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I spoke to Evan Held the other day, and he said, "Cool, you made a load of money on Dogecoin. You made a load of money on Solano." This is why you should put something in Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. And put it and hold it <laughs> yeah. for the long term. Yeah. And this is what I think Udi's point is. Yeah. It's like, why are we having this fight? If we we can say, we can call it shitcoin if we think it's shitcoin. We can call it not competition, but it's like we actually can embrace, we can criticize the project, but embrace bring, bring those people into sure. Bitcoin.
0: Sure. And Bitcoin could do a better job of this. I mean, one of the reasons I joined the Ethereum ecosystem in 2017 and didn't become a Bitcoin core contributor was because Ethereum folks were so warm and welcoming and Bitcoiners were not.
1: I mean, look, it's different. Look, the blanket statements like that sometimes don't work. Because I've had a mixed response to Bitcoiners. Some are absolute shits to me. I, I, actually some of them absolute fucking cunts to me. Uh, and but mostly everyone's great. Yeah. And I've had a brilliant time, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there can be a better job done in terms of like I, I, I want to separate. I always want to separate. What's the protocol to everything else? Sure. 2017 Fort Wars, absolutely protect the protocol.
0: And it's that. interesting because that is precisely when I just coincidentally joined the ecosystem, and right. so this was what I was exposed to was this vitriol, like in the very beginning. Yeah, and I didn't understand it. Civil war.
1: This is what me and Danny were chatting about. We didn't understand what was at stake because right. we just joined. It's like it's this. There you go. Maybe big blocks, maybe small blocks. Let's see how this works out. Now, if it happened, because I've done four years, it's like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. Like, absolutely protect that. Fine. This goes
0: precisely back to what we were just talking about, the slippery slope of how much decentralization is enough.
1: Yeah, and and, and I absolutely fundamentally support that. What I don't fundamentally support is the harassment right. and abuse and targeting of people right. for having a different opinion. You can right. think they're wrong. Right. and Mozuko thinks everything outside of Bitcoin is a scam of shitcoin. Mr. Holder does, it, and that's fine. I... Uh, they should be allowed to make their points. Right. I don't, but I don't even see the benefit of having that argument. Tell people, like I get, pe- a lot of people write to me all the time telling me, I know you're a Bitcoin only, but what do you think of this? I said, look, I'm not interested. I'm happy to play the long game with Bitcoin, sure. right? And by the way, and this is why, and let's have that conversation. Sure. But I can't keep dealing in this like endless war that achieves nothing because the other problem it creates, just this conversation alone as an example I'm naturally thinking about how do I release this so people don't say, oh, look, Pete's a shit going in now. Pete's going to launch what Ethereum did. Which, none of that's going to happen.
0: What well, Ethereum didn't.
1: What well, Ethereum didn't. But but I want to have this conversation. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm going to do Ethereum shows for the rest of the year. Right. I'm not going to cover something Please don't. That. I'm not. It's going to be a Bitcoin show. But I naturally have to think about that. And also, it's it's, it's almost like the coercive language around I, what I said What. My point: What Odie's trying to do, I think he's trying to say, you can be a Bitcoin Maxi without being a massive twat. Sure, Matt Corallo does it brilliantly. Yes, agreed. Jonas Schnelli does it brilliantly. Yep. You know, a b- bunch of these people have done way more for Bitcoin than a lot of these fucking morons, dot hodl morons online, and they're more composed with the way they do things. Um, so I'm just I'm trying to take this different approach with it now, uh, but it gets a bit complicated. Look, I think this speaks
0: to a bigger malaise we have in society around cancel culture and, and yeah. the rise of wokeism, it's it's a similar phenomenon. Like, yeah. what does liberalism really mean? Liberalism really means a marketplace of ideas, right? Liberalism yeah. really means, like, not only tolerating, but intentionally exposing oneself to like conflicting opinions and, and having these conversations constructively and and uh, respectfully. I think you do a great job of this. But uh, yeah, I mean, dude, this is if, if something is going to destroy our society, it's this
1: how many times have people tried to counsel me in the last two years? A handful. Yeah. Yeah. A handful of times. Yeah. Bitcoiners have tried to counsel me. Sure. You're probably getting it from both sides, right? You're getting Bitcoiners to say you're not maximal enough. And yeah. then you have... And the, the, they're becoming the, the thing they hate. Okay. And I don't yeah. think it's everyone. I agree with that. I think it's a small group of yeah. idiots yeah. that people don't want to stand up to. Right.
0: Because... Well, because the, 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 the risks are asymmetric. Like yeah. the risk of... The, the downside risk is far greater than the upside risk.
1: I mean, I don't give a fuck about like, literally if you want to cancel me, you're listening, try. Four attempts. One, very specific lawsuits spe- and things. N- no, well that as well. I've had one very specific one, which I'm I'm not gonna go public about that was a very direct attack on my income. Like wow. fucking bring it on now. Like, yeah. uh, like don't become the thing you hate. Yeah. You know, don't become the thing you hate. But that's a great
0: motto. Yeah. Because Bitcoin is about freedom at the end of the day. Right? Like, live and let live. Uh, what do they call it? At One of the Burning Man principles is radical self-expression, you know,
1: like. I think the point Udi's trying to make, and I'm going to talk to him about, he's saying that, and some people disagree. Some people are of the opinion Bitcoin wins whatever. And that's fine. Cool. I think he's of the opinion that Bitcoin may lose the war on narrative. Like, there is a war of narrative. It may lose that war of narrative at some point. I don't think it does. I think the reality is we have a country that's made Bitcoin legal tender. And I think we're going to get more. And I don't, I think in the end, Bitcoin's governance and monetary policy is why it wins. But I just think there's different ways we can approach people with have different opinions. It's conversations like this. Sure. It's not yeah, I I can't yell at anyone anymore. I joined that everything's a shit going. On. I just can't do it. I just too. This I'm, just why too I'm like
0: way less active on crypto Twitter than I used to be.
1: It doesn't scale as well. Like yeah. the, the arguments that you have at a thousand, then at ten thousand, a hundred, and three hundred thousand, you get through it just doesn't scale. Like I used to phone <laughs> I used to phone Danny like sometimes, like almost counseling me, like every week. I'd be walking around the park <laughs> for two hours saying, How do I manage Twitter now? Because like right. It doesn't matter what I say, right. like, it's it's just a shit show. I
0: found myself, like, when once I people started listening to me, I found myself self-censoring, and I hated that. Yes. Because, again, the risks are asymmetric. Like, yeah. the upside of saying something, you know, okay, you might have some people pile on and say, yeah, thumbs up, I like that. But the risks of saying something that, you know, triggers
1: people. I think for me, it's, Twitter's now broadcast yeah. rather than right, conversation. Right, right, right. And, and it's conversation with people I follow and right. we, we mutually follow. Right. But it's mainly broadcast. It just doesn't scale. But wow, listen, look, this has been fucking brilliant. I'm so glad we met in El Salvador. I'm really glad we did this. I think there's a lot that people will enjoy about this. I may have got some things wrong technically or made some shitty points. Apologies for that. We I know. may
0: have as well. <laughs>
1: well, we know we, we know I'm not technical, but like, uh, I think your story is fascinating. I'm glad you told it. I think there's things that Bitcoin is going to learn from this. Uh, I think there's yep. that Ethereum is going to learn from this. I think we should definitely... Get back together and do something next year when I'm in Austin. We spoke about that. Let's let's do something else. I'm going to read that article and yeah, all the best with everything, man. Blake, um, stay in touch. This was this was great. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from this conversation as
0: well. And I think if folks like you and I can sit down and have this kind of like civil, respectful conversation, I mean, hopefully, you know, we can inspire others in cross chain ecosystem kind of do the same
1: thing. Not something I support. <laughs> Put all your money in Bitcoin. <laughs> but look, uh, happy to talk to you. Uh, uh, I, like I say, I think there's a big lesson to be learned in some of this. And I'm really interested in see the feedback. It might, you know, might just blow under Yeah, blow over. The, yeah, blow over. It's possible. You, never you, know. m- you might have to spend a week in hiding. <laughs> I'm used to it. It's okay. <laughs> all right. Listen, good luck. Stay in touch. Thank and, you. Uh, appreciate- Enjoy New York. Yeah, love the city. All right. What do you think of that one? You know i really enjoyed this lane's a great guy we had dinner we talked a lot about bitcoin we also talked about ethereum it's not something i'm interested in or will be invested in um but it was really good for him to come and, and tell a story and I'm, I'm really glad he let me do it I'm sure I get a bit of hate from the Ethereum crowd thinking I'm just attacking the project. I'll probably get some hate from some Bitcoiners who now think I'm a shitcoiner. But look, no one's harmed from us having this conversation. And I learned a lot more about why I care about the conservative nature of Bitcoin governance from it. And also, look, Lane's become a friend now. We can be friends with shitcoiners. It's not a crime. Now, I think Lane's insight into the project and Ethereum Foundation was really interesting, and I, I definitely learned a lot from this. So I do hope you appreciated it, and a big thanks to Lane for coming on the show. He's probably going to get some shit off the back of this, but yes, it was a valuable conversation, and to be honest, we probably could have gone on for another couple hours. I might even talk to Lane about some other things in the future. Anyway... <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this one. If you do want to reach out to me or you drop me any feedback, you can hit me up on hello at did.com or jump into my Telegram group. Outside of that, same as ever, if you want to support the show, just head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, I'm off to go and catch a flight. Love you all, and I'll see you all next week.